Hello, everybody, and welcome to Directors Club. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, and with me today is uh, co-host Patrick Rapole. That's right. And uh, yes, yes, you're you're here. And wow, de- deja vu, Patrick. I'm I'm so excited to be talking with you again <laughs> uh, via quarantine. But uh, at the same time, I, I think that if I if I had to choose a director that I don't mind doing twice, it certainly would be Billy Wilder. Sure. <laughs> I don't Absolutely. mind. Like, if this had been, I don't know, the Greg Araki episode or another Rob Zombie episode, I probably would have been like, sorry, Patrick, I just, I, I can't. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. We had technical difficulties. And I, I have... Yeah, we had uh, we had the most technical of difficulties uh, recording this last time, um, but uh, this time I'm here. I'm caffeinated, and uh, I'm ready to talk about Billy Wilder with you uh, for a second time. Yeah, and uh, you know, as we mentioned in the bonus episode, you'll be taking a, a little leave of absence, uh, likely to stop by again though in October for an episode on Lucio, Lucio Fulci with yeah. uh, the the great Gabe Powers of Genre Grinder, but. Uh, how, how have you been? I, I I know your your fundraising project. Wow, that yeah. really took off. Yeah, I was selling on demand film reviews for ten dollars a piece, and I ended up raising eleven hundred dollars. So that was very flattering. That you know that many people uh, wanted to see what I had to say about different kinds of movies, and also no now I'm probably going to be doing that until October. <laughs> so we'll probably <laughs> still be able to talk about it come uh, the next time I'm on this podcast. Um, but yeah, that was really fun. Other than that, it's a uh, typical uh, quarantine hours over here, alternating between sort of uh, idiotic euphoria and absolute terror. Like sometimes you're just like, "Wow, I'm free!" and like everything's so crazy right now, and it's exciting. And then sometimes you're like, "Oh God, it's it's this is the slow motion apocalypse. I can't wait." Um, That's exactly so. how I feel going back to work. It's like. Oh, cool! I get to go back to one of my favorite buildings and places to go in general. Mm-hmm. The library, you yeah, know, the biggest library in downtown Chicago. Harold Washington. It's so good, and it's and it's just always a great place to hang. And then I go there, and it does feel like the apocalypse. You know, I, I go, I walk around downtown Chicago. There's hardly anybody around. Everybody's wearing masks, and it, it's just surreal. You know, because it is like that dream Tom Cruise had in Vanilla Sky. I, I I actually ran into a building and started screaming tech support at the top of my yeah. lungs, you know? How'd that turn out for you? Not good. People well, the concerned. thing is, they probably couldn't hear you because your voice was muffled by the mask. That's true. I mean, I feel, I feel like it's so serious. Like, there are literally, there's so many people dying and stuff. Like, it, any complaints you have about uh, being in quarantine and stuff are always so petty. Uh, yeah, no so I, I preface this comment with that by saying, like, for me, one of the most frustrating things as someone who doesn't hear very well is I will be at, like, the deli counter at the grocery store and I'll have to say everything three times because I can't hear what they asked me and they can't hear what I responded with. Um, yeah, that's rough. <laughs> it's And then there's just, you know, there's all the other noise and stuff like... Uh, and then uh, I wear glasses. I don't have contacts or anything, and I'm absolutely useless without them. So that means that my glasses are constantly fogging up. There's no mask solution that doesn't mean I can barely see a thing. Um, and then I have trouble breathing through it. So it's like I just feel like I'm have been wrapped in gauze, and <laughs> like I have to shout out grocery orders to people. It's it's a very uh, it's not very fun, and it definitely makes you want to 
stay inside. Though, again, this is all very uh, petty complaints compared to uh, what some people are going through. Right? I know. It's Yeah, my, my, my sister is currently back at work, and, you know, she recovered and everything, thank, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, she, she looks like a mummy. Like, a mummy with those, like, face shield masks on because she works as a healthcare worker, and it's like... It's surreal, her outfit, you know, and mm-hmm. how many layers she has. And I just, I can't imagine, how do you breathe through all, all these things? It's hard enough to breathe through just a mask. But, man, give it up for those um, those essential workers out there doing their thing and persevering and essentially risking their lives. And by give it up, I mean, by give it up, <laughs> what we mean is tax the rich so that they can get paid a living wage. Mm. <laughs> that is actually, like, no one wants your fucking applause. Your applause is worth less than shit. Like... Let's start That's paying true. people like $15 an hour is no longer even a real living wage. That's how long people have been fighting for $15 an hour. But like yeah. minimum wage in this country is absolutely insane. And that's like the first thing that needs to be addressed or people need to stop saying essential workers. One of the two. That's true. That's true. I know that's something I've, I've been wrestling with myself, but it's just a weird time and it's not going to get any less weird i think i mean yeah. even if everybody's like let's open it up i i, I just I mark the date when everything starts to open up back again mark the date two two weeks after that and then it's like you'll you'll see how well that worked out yeah um yeah boy no, we're really we should talk about some things that make us happy <laughs> i'm sure people didn't. i want to talk about movies because they make me happy we are not a news podcast people are not tuning into this to hear the latest on uh the thing that everyone is already way too aware of so what if we talked about some movies what if we talked about what we watched this week i'm down for that Movie of them all. Oh, 
So, Patrick, I, I got to ask, did you watch anything exciting this week? Like maybe Flight of the Navigator? Flight of... Wow, that's weird. I haven't thought about Flight of the Navigator in years. It's like a little kid's movie, right? No, I haven't watched that. Uh, what I did watch was some Giallo films. And uh, I was wondering, Jim, um, what are what are your feelings on Giallo as a, as a subgenre? Well, in general, I, I, I think we share similar feelings in that they're often kind of boring except for the kills or i don't know there's too much exposition uh and just like some of the the detective interaction i don't know when when, once you get the police involved like that seems to be something that a lot of these films do is like cut away to the investigation yeah the the procedural part and somehow that is really it really slows things down that's kind of how i feel even in something like deep red where I just look forward to the next cool sequence, you know, rather than be excited about it. But the, a lot of them do look good. Yeah, yeah, you know, for in sure. In terms of production design and cinematography, so. So I feel the same way. Like, uh, I feel like if we go back and listen to Dario Argento episodes or even Mario Bava episodes, like, there are films such as Deep Red Bird with the Crystal Plumage that are beloved that just don't really do it for me. Or, like, Blood and Black Lace is one of my least favorite Mario Bava films. Uh so, like, as a really diehard fan of slasher movies, the thing I like about slasher movies is that they're sort of, like, hangout movies, um, and you're just sort of observing these people, um, and there's it's sort of a built-in interest because you know they're going to die, so there's a tension there, even though they're just sort of, like, hanging out by the lake and telling dumb jokes. 
Um, <laughs> and so, like, Giallo is, like, strips all of that away where uh, it's very plot-heavy. There's a lot of focus on the mystery, even though y- you can never, ever solve it. Um, the characters are all super unrelatable. It's always, like, these weird upper-class Italian people and... You know, their voices are all dubbed so that you don't really have a good connection to the characters and just ever and the often the translations are bad and you're just sort of baffled at the things that are happening. But I uh, our, our mutual friend Gabe Powers uh, on his genre grinder website, he has this little feature called grinding the stream um, where he is where he's sort of uh, putting together all these lists of genre films. Um, separated by genre, everything from spaghetti westerns, you know, to North American sci-fi to Giallo, and saying what streaming sites they're available on. And oh, I gotta check that out. That's cool. So I want to say back in March, I watched this movie called The Fifth Chord, um, which is a Giallo film uh, starring Franco Nero, and I can't say it's a good movie. It's pretty mediocre. Like it has a lot of the problems that those other movies have, but the thing it does sure. have that you mentioned is that it's absolutely amazing looking. Um, I forget the man's name, but it's shot by the same guy who shot The Conformist by Bertolucci, which is one of the... Which is a movie I do not like, but is a movie that I think is maybe the best looking film ever made. Um, And it has that same thing, and it kind of elevates everything. So even though the plot is sort of generic and you can't help to... you know, there's, There's no real way you can ever solve the mystery... Uh, you watch it and you go, holy shit, like every this this suddenly takes on so much more meaning just because it's so beautiful looking. And so that sort of put me in mind like, you know, maybe, you know, my tastes develop and change. And uh, Giallo is definitely something you get an acquired taste for. Once you start realizing the tropes, you can start seeing the things that make the films different from each other. Um, it's sort of like any subgenre of film or music or anything. You got to get familiar with it before you can really appreciate it. Um so then I went back and I watched Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling, which is because I've been a real Fulci kick, and that movie's great uh, because Lucio Fulci just has this insane energy, even though it doesn't it doesn't have all the surrealism and like absolutely repulsive <laughs> murders of like you know a City of the Living Dead or The Beyond or something. It still has that weird energy, like there's all these kind of crazy jump cuts, and it's again it's beautiful looking because. It's Italy, and it's almost an unfair advantage. <laughs> these movies that are shot in Italy, because everywhere is so beautiful. You have these, like, a small town in America just kind of looks like a Georgia, you know, like a small town. There's, a, you know, a barber shop and a grocery store or whatever. A small town in Italy is like this labyrinth built on a mountainside. Like, every, every all the buildings uh, look amazing, and everywhere there's interesting compositions because of the layers of of the city. So when you get like a long shot of the town, you're, it's just really spectacular looking. And in that movie, there's like this highway that's above a forest that feels like it's out of a dream. It feels a lot like the highway and the beyond where you're just like, where is this? Where did he find this? And the truth is like, no, it's Italy. Italy is just a really amazing looking, beautiful place. Yeah. I feel Um, like I might've mentioned this before, but maybe the reason why I like, you know, some of De Palma's work even like even if it doesn't make sense it always looks good and the, mm-hmm. t- on the, the on a technical level i'm just impressed by whether it's his, his use of location or just the general zaniness of the camera work and i think that giallo films share that yeah in common. it's just that sometimes they don't make sense and i can't follow every little thing that's going on but at least it's interesting to look at i feel like 
there is this weird sense of frisson that happens. Like, because for me, I, you're absolutely right that Brian De Palma films can feel like Giallo um, in the way that they can just be very strange and stuff happens for seemingly no reason, but they're always amazing looking. For me, yeah. it always feels like maybe the one of the essential ingredients as a American audience member is this feeling of a lost in translation Whereas Brian De Palma films too closely resemble movies that do make sense. Like, they're too close (laughs) to Hitchcock. Hitchcock, And so in my brain, I'm trying to watch them as a movie. Whereas when I watch uh, certain Giallo movies, they're just so insane that my brain immediately clocks out. Where it's like Femme Fatale, for the first... For you know, first part of it, you can look at it and go like, "All right, yeah, it's a heist. This is this is going to be a heist movie." And then when it starts doing other stuff, your brain could you has been set the expectations have been set uh, for you know what is in that genre, and it can be confusing. Sure, and, and so play, I think for me, there's something way, yeah. that makes Brian De Palma not quite click, even though his movies are often spectacular looking, and some of them are very very good. Um, but whereas I think my rational brain just totally shuts off when watching certain Giallo. Like, again, Lucio Fulci's this madman and uh, Don't Torture a Duckling is has this really crazy editing style and it's really fast paced and it's just scuzzy and weird. And and it, so it activates a different part of my brain than something like uh, Dress to Kill. Um, uh, and then that is absolutely even truer of the Sergio Martino Giallo films I watched. I watched All the Colors of the Dark and Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only Eye of the Key. And God, Sergio, I love these titles. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, that is the thing about Giallo that everyone knows. It's just like they have the most lurid, uh, sensational titles uh, that are just somewhere in between a haiku and like a uh, scandalous headline. <laughs> um, just beautiful. Uh, so all the colors of the uh, or I, sh- I watched uh, your vice is a locked room and I only had the key first and that movie is like so gross <laughs> it's unbelievable it's so like the very first scene is someone's wedding night and for some reason their wedding party is just a bunch of hippies who live near a nearby forest and it's the and it's the groom just humiliating the bride in front of everyone and it's and it's just this like weird uh SNME kind of feeling like public humiliation sequence and the whole movie he is just like you the whole movie you go oh yeah well he can't be the killer cuz it's too obvious that he's the killer cuz he is this nasty abusive guy who is around every murder that happens and every murder that happens has a connection to him and you go well it has to be him but in a way that I know there's a twist coming so it can't be Um, but so like he just gets to be this horrendous villain the whole time Um, just everything about it is really skeezy like there's they have they have like a black servant and they're constantly saying racist shit and (laughs) like for the very first scene you're like Jesus Christ stop please and then at certain point, she gets murdered, and you're like, well, at least the upside is they could stop saying racist shit. And they don't! They keep saying racist shit about her oh the whole gosh. movie. So, like, the whole movie, uh, it kind of bypasses the boredom of the detective sequences in a lot of Giallo, because it's just, there is no detective sequences, really. There's a detective who has two or three scenes where he comes and asks questions, but he's not the main character. Really, what you're doing when watching this movie is just watching absolutely horrendous, gross things happen for no reason at all. Um, and it's just, it's one of these things where if it was a movie that came out in 2020, it would be like really offensive. And I'd be like, Jesus Christ, who the fuck do they think they are? But because it's a movie that came out in 1972, it's almost like 
it, it's it's almost like a stuffed tiger or something where it's like, well, that can't hurt anyone anymore. This is just stupid. Um, <laughs> and all the racism and misogyny and everything is just like right there for everyone to see. Um, and it it's not really, it doesn't feel as insidious, even though I'm sure there are some people who are negatively influenced by old films. It's It just seems like such a less uh, powerful thing that you can sort of just appreciate how fucking crazy it is. Um, so your vice is a locked room and only I have the key is definitely a take a shower after you see it kind of movie where you can't take your eyes off of it. And then all the colors of the dark, uh, which is also directed by Sergio Martino, also starring a, uh, uh, Edwich, uh, Fenich, who is this sort of Italian sex symbol. Who's in a bunch of giallo films and sort of Italian sex comedies of the era. Yeah. Um, I looked her up and she resembles a little bit, uh, the lead character, I can't remember the actress's name, uh, from The Love Witch. Yeah. Which I imagine must be somewhat influenced by this. Yeah, I mean, the the Love Witch is definitely taking from a whole bunch of different exploitation traditions, but one of them is absolutely Italian films. Uh, that's not a giallo by any means, but like, right, right. you definitely know that Anna Biller has seen all of the Colors of the Dark and <laughs> has seen pr- probably every Sergio Martino movie. The you love which feels like the product of someone with an encyclopedic knowledge of that stuff, um, and then it's also shot by Giancarlo Ferrando. And your vice is a locked room, and I only have the key. Is a good looking movie. All the colors of the dark is the best looking movie. It is insane. Um, it's it's really like a, it's hard to overstate how gorgeous it is. I do think for me it is the there is a, there is a tier of. Uh, horror film that is just like I every aesthetic choice astounds me and I can watch them just admiring the photography and stuff and that's movies like Black Sabbath uh, not Black Sabbath, Black Sunday um, Black Sabbath is also gorgeous but just only slightly less so um, or like Suspiria or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a different sort of way um, are these movies that just the colors and the photography and the light and everything the shadows they're so perfectly um, achieved that it kind of elevates everything that happens where Suspiria is a movie that has a really dumb plot and a lot of bad acting and it doesn't matter because it's just so gorgeous and the way Argento uses colored lighting and the camera movements and everything is just so perfect. Um, and All the Colors of the Dark is absolutely that. So in this one, Edwitch uh, Fenich is this woman who's newlywed and she's afraid of having sex Um and she goes to a satanic uh, orgy cult, um, and then get and sort of gets indoctrinated into their their coven, uh, and then that frees her up sexually. But then also strange things start happening. So it's really not a traditional giallo. I have talked to Gabe Powers about this, and he said that there is a divide between masculine and feminine giallo. And actually, hmm. this is a different giallo tradition, which is more psychological, more internal. Um, uh, so apparently the, there are a lot of giallo films that are just like this, but this doesn't have the mask-gloved killer necessarily. This doesn't have a long series of murders. This doesn't have investigations. Um, yeah, I was going to ask if it's a whodunit of any kind. It's sort of about this woman who's at her wit's end, um, who takes a drastic measure, and then her life you know, goes, goes upside down. Um, and it's really hard to describe what happens in it other than that, because like the whole second act, basically nothing happens, but it's so amazing looking, you don't care. Um, and it's just so powerful because every color choice, it's not just, you know, a lot of times when you say a movie has beautiful colors, what you're saying is it has vivid colors or like vibrant. It's like Suspiria where 
It's just you you don't see that kind of rainbow uh, colored lighting uh, very often. Whereas this, it's a lot more subdued and it's a lot more subtle and nuanced. And there's just a lot of stuff in, you know involving compositions and shadows and the way the rooms are decorated and the way, uh, you know, it's called All the Colors of the Dark. And it really is about uh, these sort of muted, not muted, but uh, sort of darker color palettes uh, you know these hmm. these lav- these garishly decorated rooms in in shadow and it's just I like you know it's a movie where what happens in it there's a little scene at the end where the detective's like anyway here's what was been going on this whole time and you watch it and you're <laughs> like fuck you none of this made any sense you don't get to explain the, all the colors of the dark <laughs> what's been happening the whole time is Sergio Martino's been going what would be cool to shoot and then he does it um, and. Uh, so like the plot doesn't really mean much. It's not, there's a lot of psychological horror of the seventies that is dealing with uh sort of whether it's in, you know, whether it's in support of or in negative reaction to the feminist movement. There's a lot of, of horror films of the seventies that are about sort of women's problems and about um, their psychological issues and their problems. Yeah, we talked about one on the, uh... We talked about one on the bonus episode with Robert Altman's Images. Exactly, exactly. So Images is a movie where I think it is uh, trying to be very empathetic towards uh, towards these problems. And then I think there are a lot of Euro horror films which are going the other direction. Like I uh, I watched The Blood Spattered Bride recently as a film that someone uh, paid money to for me to review. And that's a Spanish horror film that it deals with a similar problem. It's a woman who's afraid of having a newlywed who's afraid of having sex. But in that one, it's like a horror story about how feminism turns women against their husbands. <laughs> it's like really <laughs> gross. Um, it ends like mm. it ends with the vampire, the evil uh, female vampire getting her breast cut off. Like that's how the, that's like the yeah. big heroic thing that happens at the end of the movie. So you're like, okay, these are some sick men who are working out their shit. Um, but like either way, it, it definitely feels like of that tradition, but it is more in the line of uh, women and their psychological issues are inexplicable and unknowable, and it's frightening how women change their minds all the time. So, like, there is a little bit of a sexist slant to this as well. Sergio Martino, also the director of Torso, which is a movie that is almost entirely about, like, let's look at these sexy co-eds and then let's murder them violently. Um, like... Sergio Martino, not necessarily a uh, second wave feminist, but uh, he is a uh, very powerful uh, director. And again, if you can watch a movie from 1972 and just sort of accept the sexual politics for what they are, um, there is a whole lot to uh, appreciate. Yeah, no, I I'm very curious to catch up on some more Giallo films, uh, probably around October. But I, I I I certainly appreciate a movie that. Can, it just looks good and it's interesting to on a visual level yeah even if even if not everything comes together in the end in a satisfying way sometimes just that element alone can get me through it it really does have to be like the best looking movie i've ever seen there are a lot of movies like i think mandy is a film that looks great but it's not great enough for me to ignore the fact that i don't care about anything that happens in it um yeah whereas I'm with like you there the Strange Color of Your Body's Tears is a movie that is one of the most insane-looking, spectacular movies I've ever seen, and the fact that I don't care about anything that happens in it is irrelevant because that movie's so cool to look at. 
So it really is like a fine line. Um, and I don't know exactly what it is that pushes a movie over that line for me, but uh, All the Colors yeah, of the Dark so, definitely goes over that line. Yeah, because some Argento movies do look great and don't, I, I, I don't connect with them Yeah, for whatever reason. And I Argento is someone uh, who... It feels like there is... The difference is that there... Like, Lucio Fulci... He, I, you know, I, it, I think about Lucio Fulci and I just think he is this madman who was also extremely talented. And I feel like calling him a madman is almost diminishing of his powers. And, and it's kind of like, it's a diminishing way to talk about an artist who clearly, you know, had control over what he was doing. He wasn't just, you know, some drug addict who got lucky. He, he knew what he was doing. And so like, you you don't want to just say like oh he's crazy and that's it because it's it's a less interesting than actually looking at what they are choosing to do and how they choose to tell stories and how all this irrationality manifests and the specific ways that make it work. Um, but like I feel like Argento is very logical and rational and like there are the scenes that get him excited and you can tell immediately which scenes gets him get him excited and then there are the scenes where he's like all right we just got to get through this this is the plot. And like Deep Red is one of those movies where, like the murder scenes, the the scene where the you know dummy on the tricycle or whatever comes out, like oh what what oh, like that is someone who is fully engaged with what he's doing. And then the scenes where the you know reporter and the detective are having their dumb little comments with each other. That's the stuff where he's just sort of trying to get it over with. Sergio Martino, uh, at least when you're watching All the Colors of the Dark in Your Vice is a Locked Room, like these are movies where he has completely gotten rid of anything he's not interested in. And as a result, you they're they're kind of wild and and uh, hard to follow, but they are also never boring. Good, because like I, I I do look for some kind of consistency in pacing, you know, because that's that can be tricky. Like there it's so easy, especially if you have ADD or something, you know, to just like completely zone out if you're not engaged by the plot or, uh, you know, a moment of just two people talking about what's going on. So I think, I think that's important to have at least some sort of sense of pacing. Like that's, that's probably why my, my brain immediately responded to something like, you know, the, the, the first couple of evil dead movies, because they're, 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 they're 80 minutes, 90 minutes. And, it's like the, the, it's relentless. You want to and talk about ADD horror movies? Like Evil Dead is a movie. A lot of those early Sam Raimi movies feel like someone who is afraid. He's like he thinks that if there is a da- any downtime, then right. he's going to lose you as an audience member. So he got to keep it going. Um, yeah, exactly. And luckily, it works. It it doesn't come off as obnoxious. Like another filmmaker who has that approach is Michael Bay, and as a result, Michael Bay movies just sort of feel like grueling tests of will because everything is always the biggest possible version of it all the time. And it's just like, Oh, I'm so over this. Whereas Sam Raimi internally in those scenes, he knows how to pace things. He knows when to ramp it up and bring it down. Um, yeah, it's just that it happens more frequently. That's exactly where I'm at. Like if I ever made a movie, it would be 90 minutes. I don't, I don't want, I, I, some movies to me do feel too, like I like they have too much fiber. I I wind up, they, they feel bloated. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just kind of go, uh, you could have trimmed this or you could have trimmed that. And that sort of transitions a little bit into um, what I want to talk about because certainly one of the um, you know more recently renowned comedy directors, Judd Apatow, 
talk about bloated, like his running times. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I forgot who I was talking to on a podcast about like missing um, a you know, more recent time in comedy that seems to be gone now. Because uh, you know, recently I just started. I just started to want some comfort comedies. You know, in the middle of this pandemic, I just feel like, oh yeah, we could all use a good laugh, and certainly I'm one of them. Uh, and I've come to the conclusion that I love two comedies even more than I do Wet Hot American Summer. And uh, that's that's shocking for me to say, but uh, the laugh quotient is higher. And I, I also really underestimated them both uh, upon first viewing, and that would be uh, Step Brothers and Burn After Reading. Really? <laughs> yes. 2008, <laughs> a good year, I guess. Apparently. They both came out the same year? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Richard Jenkins had a hell of a year then. Good Step Lord. Brother, no, yeah, Step Brothers 2008. It might be 2007. I think, I think they're both the same year. I think you're right. I mean, it, it could be like rewatching them on edibles might have helped. But. <laughs> you do need to put an asterisk on that almanac there, Jim, as far as most laughs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I started to like revise my list of favorite comedies and I'm kind of like, well, I guess I could watch What Out American Summer just to, like gauge to see mm-hmm. if it's, you know, just because I watched these more recently and I was in a certain mood and, you know, it's all about timing and placement. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I know that you're a little bit different as far as this goes, but for me, like, comedies are like gum. Like, eventually they're going to lose their flavor. Um, it, I really can't think of many movies that I could watch 12 times and on the 12th time I'm still laughing. Um, yeah, I can which see Which is I a failing of them. Be. It's just sort of that's how comedy works that... Joy of Surprise isn't really there. Maybe like a Buster Keaton where it's just all about the physical performance and that is always the same level. You can appreciate that on the same way. But uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, I'm not someone who can rewatch comedies and keep really getting uh, a lot out of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly interesting, you know, thinking back to my initial response to something like Burn After Reading as being minor Cohen brothers. Mm-hmm. And that, again, that could just be because, you know, and I think most cinephiles know that they, they do this, you know, weird pattern of following up the prestige Oscar movie with kind of a weird surreal comedy of some kind. And you're sort of taken aback initially. Like a lot of people talk about both Paul Thomas Anderson, and the Cohen brothers as being filmmakers that you have to watch their movies at least a second time or a third time because they work on some weird cerebral level that the first time it's 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 not all not everything is registering in a way and like that's been the case for me i think with the majority of coen brothers movies well i think Um, the thing especially paul thomas anderson but this could definitely be true of burn after reading is that you can go in with certain expectations and they're not really interested in that where paul thomas anderson says he's going to make a movie you know, uh, like you hear the logline of what the master is about. You can't really guess what that movie is actually going to be like. It's not until you have a firm idea of the whole structure of the thing that you can really watch it a second time and go, oh, okay, this is what, how he's doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's true. And, and Burn After Reading, it's like you can watch it and go like, oh, it's going to be a uh, political thriller, you know, or... Yeah, you know, or it's going it to be The Big there. Lebowski, and it's actually something in between there. Yeah, I mean, like it, it, it essentially like starts out like a Bourne movie, you know, with that with that camera work, and you know, it's it, I guess it's their, 
I don't know if I'd call it like a spy thriller satire necessarily, but it, it's just it's it's just such a crazy, weird movie that I think for some reason it do, it took me like three or four viewings, and this is probably my fifth viewing of it, and um, I just felt like the pacing, the timing, the delivery of jokes are all based on characters interacting or or extreme misunderstandings rather than like sight gags, and I do like obviously sight gags and puns and easy laughs in something like Wet Hot American Summer. But to me, this this type of humor is based on who these people really are and their fundamental flaws more than just like let's be wacky and let's have this wacky character in a, you know wearing a funny disguise or something, you know. And I again like I don't mind you know, your Amazon Women on the Moon or, or Top Secret or, you know, things that really get outlandish. Uh, and, and But I feel, I feel like, at least with Burn After Reading, every line delivered by Brad Pitt, every facial expression is gold. I really, like, kind of... I, I kind of watch this and go, this is, might be my favorite Brad Pitt performance. Because mm-hmm. everything he does makes me laugh. Um, you know, George Clooney's, like, paranoia-infused eyes... Are, are remarkable and John Malkovich losing his mind. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why this didn't click for me again. Like maybe you're mentioning expectations, but I, I'm, you know, this is like become top five Coen brothers for me over time now. And yeah, especially watching it now, it just, it's just like, you know, the idea of misunderstanding something and thinking you're, you actually have power when you don't, or that you're significant when you're aren't when you really aren't. It's just like, I don't know. It it, it just it just worked for me, including, you know, um, J.K. Simmons sort of summing summing everything up at the end. Like before, I thought that was lazy writing, but now I think it's masterful. <laughs> it's like the funniest joke. So this is one of the first conversations you and me ever had about film. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Was when we got to know each other in you know 2008. And uh, we were at some show, and I was talking to you about how I just saw Burn After Reading, how it was so – I was just, like, dying laughing the whole time. And you were like, really? And at yeah, the time, like, like I all I could really I say was, I don't know. It's the funniest movie I've ever seen. Like, I, I can't – I don't know how to explain to you why this is so great, except that every part of it is hilarious. And you were just like, huh. And I, and well, I was I like, think people Maybe? People felt that way. Like I walked out of Big Lebowski on cloud nine. Yeah, and there, but there were a lot of people who were like, "Really? Yeah, yeah." That's the that thing good. people might not remember is Big Lebowski was a huge flop. Yeah, it was coming off of Fargo, and people really thought Big Lebowski was just kind of dumb and silly. Like no one really took it seriously outside of uh, the cult few, such as yourself, who like saw what it was the first time. Yeah, and it's 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 pretty amazing how that's. I mean, I don't know if Burn After Reading will ever have, <laughs> like, Lebowski-like cult behind it, but... Well, there's no characters that, like, Lebowski, it, the cult around the Big Lebowski at this point is like a lifestyle thing. It's yeah. like he's the ultimate slacker god, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's Whereas true. Burn After Reading hates all of its characters. <laughs> it just despises them. Even Richard Jenkins, it's like, fuck Even poor here. Richard Jenkins, I feel so bad for him. That is a but, great Bush era uh, movie. Uh, that so it was a movie for me. I just thought, well, it's just funny. It's just got a lot of really great actors being very silly and very funny. Um, it feels like every single actor is grateful to get to play the kind of character they're playing. Yeah, um, totally. Like George Clooney only ever gets to be a stupid goofball 
when he's working with the Coen brothers. I guess there's some other comedies he's done, like Leatherheads or Men Who Stare at Goats or whatever. But, like, his his roles in, like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and stuff like that, like, it feels almost similar to the way Hitchcock uses Jimmy Stewart, where they're like, this guy is the suavest, coolest, most sophisticated movie star there is, so let's just make him a goober. Um, and the same way, like, the Hitchcock is like subverting Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo and saying like, mm. let's reveal that America's, you know, gentleman sweetheart is actually a, you know, a, is actually insane and unhinged. Um, and so like it, but like also Brad Pitt never gets to be a, st- a stupid idiot. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Francis McDormand always gets to be over the top. So she's just sort of in her wheelhouse there. Um, yeah. No, she's great. Everybody's but, uh, great. John Malkovich, you know, he gets to he gets to play like he's sort of playing a subversion of his character because he is just this like people think of John Malkovich as prete- you know as a pretentious uber actor. So like he gets to be a pretentious asshole in Burn After Reading. Yeah. Um, and then you know J.K. Simmons is just doing the best J.K. Simmons thing, but it's the same thing he does in a lot of his stuff. Same with Richard Jenkins. Uh. Richard Jenkins, I don't know if, like, Richard Jenkins is so great and everything, and this is one of the few roles where he's, like, sweet, and he's not just being acerbic and cutting people down. Um, and I almost wonder <laughs> if, like, he was just, like, grateful to play a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, he, he is so good without calling attention to the fact that he's playing a different character at the same time. Like, he's, like, you see Richard Jenkins, and you you know what to expect to some degree, but then again, in something like Step Brothers, him getting to let loose and improvise is also wonderful. Like yeah. I think I think everything at the Catalina Winemaker, um, it, that that everything there is comic gold. Like I think just the build up to the to Will Ferrell singing that song and then everybody imagining these ridiculous things <laughs> um, while the song is playing. Like that—that's exactly my kind of humor. And and, and he, again, like I—I I don't know if I just put like, um, especially Anchorman. I put that like in such high regard that even Step Brothers to me was just like, oh, it was good. I really liked it the first time I saw it. But now I think it's a comedy classic. You know, it's—I—I I, I mean, I like screwball comedies that are kind of manic and and weird and surreal. But I—I I almost feel like lately there hasn't been a good example of something like Step Brothers, outside of maybe like pop star never stop never stopping uh i i just i just wonder what the future of comedy is going to be well i mean i don't know what anything's going to be uh right now i mean if but, you i would say the history of comedy of this decade is television uh because yeah, we are now yeah. at a point where people can just do whatever they want on television it's okay to be tvma and they're also given more artistic freedom to do weird stuff in a way that you know, at the time you look at the, you know, at the time the state was really out there and was too strange and no one at MTV really understood it. Um, and it was, that was considered the alternative comedy, you know, but now alt comedy has won. Like comedians are now all personalities. They have podcasts. People got to know them and the Mr. Shows and the States of the world won. Um, and so those people with the really wild ideas who want to push boundaries and stuff, they're working in TV now. 
Um, yeah, no, you're definitely right. Like I just, Key and Peele is Key and Peele's some of the most great cinematic <laughs> sketch comedy you'll ever see. Like that stuff looks like movies. It's much funny. Like the show is much funnier than Keanu, the film they made together. Um, maybe I should. Uh, yeah, maybe I should watch more because I've only seen Key and Peele in like you know fits and starts, just like sketches here and there, but never like a consistent run of a season or something. Yeah, I mean, it's a sketch comedy show, so there are yeah. good sketches, and then there are mediocre sketches. That's just sort of the nature of the thing. But um, they, what they achieved over four or five seasons, like the number of absolutely perfect sketch comedy uh, that they've done is like amazing. Um, oh, I don't doubt it. I just So, like, I just started watching, uh, last night, I started watching the Black Lady sketch show, uh, which hmm, is, okay. I would also recommend, it's an HBO sketch show it's a it's really I, I thought it was really funny um there's a lot of i mean you have you have shows that are pushing the boundaries not just in a how silly and weird and you know avant-garde can we get but you have shows like crazy ex-girlfriend which are you know not just pushing the boundaries as far as being a musical show on tv but also in terms of long form actually mature adult storytelling like that's always the problem with most sitcoms is by the time you get to the sixth season Everyone has to sort of be the most shrill, uh, ridiculous version of whatever their character is. And oh, yeah, so that everyone even happened just to feels... something like Gilmore Girls for me. Yeah, oh, really? I, I, yeah. Gilmore Girls I never saw. But, like, if you look at last se- later scenes of The Office or Parks and Rec or everything, like, mm-hmm. everyone is, like, a sixth grader. Like, every, no, everyone has the emotional <laughs> maturity of a 12-year-old. And Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a show that was, like... What if, you know, A, let's be a comedy show that's 45 minutes long. Like, that's basically unheard of. Um, Like, what if we took these characters seriously? What if we took their mental illness seriously? What if we actually explored people trying to better themselves? Like, that to me is a groundbreaking, great comedy show. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, most people know I'm in agreement with you there. And obviously, the the songwriting of uh, the, the late, great Adam Schlesinger really enhanced and he was just such a great collaborator with Rachel Bloom. Yeah, he was the perfect him and Rachel Bloom were like the perfect comedy songwriting team. Absolutely. Um, and as far as like they both want to parody different genres and stuff like that and he just has that knowledge of every different kind of genre that yeah, which meant that when they did a pop punk song there was a specificity to it, you know, that like just made it work. Um like I think Difficult People is one of the great great all-time great sitcoms that well that's on Hulu. Um, oh, that's one I've been meaning to yeah, I hear people talking about that one. Yeah, I should it's, check, it's check like, that one out. It's like it's like if 30 Rock was funnier. Like it has that same like super rapid fire joke thing. And maybe oh, it's good. just there's a cultural specificity because it's so gay <laughs> and catty, but like yeah. but um it has that it has sort of the the uh, pacing of a 30 Rock. So like for me like you you're absolutely right at that you look at recent film comedies and they're almost all disappointing. Uh yeah. there are people like, you know, Greta Gerwig who are doing very good work uh telling, you know, in the more of the I don't know, the I, James L Brooks is not necessarily a specific touchstone for her, but in terms of just mixing drama and comedy, you have films like Lady Bird and Francis Ha that are great. Um yeah, you know, and Mistress say, America is probably one of the great comedies of the yeah. last. So, but like so for the years. most for the most part, mainstream comedies are bad. Like some of the great comedians are only getting in terrible movies. You know, like you have uh, uh, Kevin Hart, like in just god awful movie after god awful movie. Even though he's very funny, you have Kamel Nanjiani just making terrible comedies. Um, there's a 
and I do think that Judd Apatow like sloppiness. There's a laziness to it now that. Ugh, yeah, it's gotten annoying. You know, it's he's sort of like doubled down on cameos rather than characters. Yeah. Well, it's funny. We're, we'll talk about him uh, in terms of Billy Wilder because I think Billy Wilder is a big influence on uh, Judd Apatow. Um, so when we talk about the apartment, I'm going to talk about Judd Apatow a little more. But like, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much amazing comedy happening now that it's hard to complain. But if you're specifically looking for comedy feature films, then yeah, we're in a particularly dire. We just finished a particularly dire decade uh, for them. Yeah, and I, you know, and I can't look to Adam McKay anymore. For, no. for another Step Brothers, you know. Well, what's and it's, funny is and it's both the thing that links Step Brothers and Burn After Reading for me is that they're both super angry, cynical movies that are that hate fucking America during the Bush years. They they are <laughs> yeah. they are they are looking back at two terms of George W. Bush presidency, and they're just sort of giving big middle fingers. Um, so like Burn After Reading, I just thought it was like a lot of manic, zany, funny comedy. Um, I've since I'm not like an expert on the CIA or anything, but like I've since read a book on the history of the CIA legacy of ashes. Mm. And um, it's if you like if you hear the whole story about the CIA, uh, one of the things you will quickly learn is that they fuck up all the time because there's no accountability. So no one has to show any results because everything is disavowed. And so it is just burn after reading like it is a constant example. It is just like constant examples of them spending you know tens of millions of dollars to have a coup in a small country and then they end up making things go the other way because they fucked it up and didn't have the right contacts and then all the people that they worked with they didn't save so those people who were collaborating with the cia were executed and like it's the story again and again and again it's just like absolutely absurd i listened to an audiobook of legacy of ashes and it really felt like an aristocrat's joke because it is just a <laughs> non-stop cavalcade of the most horrific shit you've ever heard in your life and Damn. it's almost, and it's like a comedy of errors so like i feel that burn after reading it's not accurate it's not a uh, you know it's not a tinker taylor soldier spy in that way but like no, for me no. that is one of the quintessential movies about the intelligence agencies about the intelligence industry about that uh, sort of world because it is just about how they are all fuck ups who have no accountability and they're yeah, and, no, an, an and no lessons are ever learned. Like it's an intelligence industry that often doesn't have any intelligence. With right. The so way like, they make when their J.K. Decisions. Simmons goes, well, what did we learn from this? Fucking nothing. Like that is like, what did we learn from the Iraq War? Are we still in Iraq? We sure are. Did you know Barack Obama did yeah. not pull us out of Iraq? What did we learn from the Bush years? Nothing. We're we're repeating all these same mistakes. Like I, it's unbelievable that how close these like it, the the anger. I think probably why they speak to you more now is because we are, we are like in a point where we can look back on those years and really understand how fucked up they are, and because we're kind of reliving them. Um, yeah, we are. <laughs> I feel more angry and 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 cynical and. Not necessarily pessimistic, but definitely not as optimistic right. as I, I've been in the past. And it's, I think these felt like, I bet I bet if I watch Killing of a Sacred Deer now, that'll also click with me a little bit more. Because that's, talk about a film about accountability or yeah. a lack of accountability. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, talk about a film for its era and also a, and like Burn After Reading, a movie where I was the only one in the theater who was just dying of laughter the whole time. <laughs> I can't imagine what killing of a sacred deer. I know there are people. I I think um, 
Uh, Shockwave's Elric Kane also mentioned that he had that experience of laughing a lot during killing of a sacred deer, and I'm like, that is a dark, twisted movie that I never really thought of as a comedy, but maybe I, it, I think it that is? is way. I think I mean, you know, all of his all of uh, his movies are overtly comedic. They're, it's not just like, oh, it's weird, and that's why I'm laughing. Like there there are jokes and shit. Um, I think it's maybe yeah, yeah. it's maybe less straightforward in that way than something like The Favorite, but uh, for me, like. Every the way everything plays in that movie is hysterical and and purposefully so and again I think it's just a thing where if you go in looking at it on a straightforward level you can look at Burn After Reading and be like well this doesn't make any sense everyone's an idiot everyone's acting stupid like this is a bad spy movie you can go into Mother is another movie that I was just dying oh, yeah. of laughter the whole time. And everyone in the Elston Theater was getting really mad. And, and, like, there are certain shocking moments where they left. And I was like, how can you take this seriously enough to get offended? Because it's so, st- like, it's so, it is wearing its heart on its sleeve. It's not trying to trick you. It's not being subversive. It is just ridiculous and silly. Um, and happily so. And not not in a, like, I feel like Aronofsky knew what he was doing when he made that movie. Do you and think audiences so, are just not tuned into that tone, yeah, that wavelength, I, I think, you know? I mean, this is the same thing we always talk about, where, like, audiences want to see a good version of the movie they expect, where cinephiles want to be surprised. Um, Mm. And I think, you know, like, that's why a movie like Moneyball can become a classic, because it is just a very well-achieved version of the exact thing that it purports to be. It is the true story, and it is, here's the things that are interesting about it, and we have these good performances by these good actors... And if, and everything is in its right place. And so people, that is just like this new classic film because it is exactly yeah. what it says it's going to do and it does it well. Mad it Max Fury Road. Yeah. Mad Max Fury Road is another example. There's a little bit subversive stuff here and there. But for the most part, it's like if you wanted to go see kick-ass vehicular you know, mayhem, guess what? You got the best possible version of it in Mad Max Fury Road. So like, I feel like there are certain movies that connect with people because they just point to the center field, Babe Ruth style, and then they hit it right there. And for me, I want the weird shit. I want the inside the park home run because the infielders keep throwing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like I've yeah. seen en- I've seen enough movies and I'm not and I don't watch predominantly like I do think most even a lot of cinephiles they predominantly watch new movies. Um and I don't. I I mostly watch older films and stuff. So for me, doing something different than most Main, you know, modern Hollywood movies is not necessarily enough to get me excited. It really has to do something I haven't seen before, um, and I do think like Burn After Reading was an example of that movie where that ending. I was just, I was, I could not believe that that's how they ended the movie. Uh, yeah, I the know. audacity of it. Uh, Step Brothers is another one where Adam McKay he hates fucking Middle America so much, and, <laughs> and it comes out in like less and less uh, tasteful ways as his career went on, and that's sort of what makes his movies obnoxious and annoying. Yeah, I know. Just like, he started you're taking only going to listen to seriously. this and you see Margot Robbie in a bathtub. Aren't you, you dumb fucking cheese-eating assholes? Like, he's, like, he just right. so, he just so uh, elitist and um, snobbish about his very, very mild political opinions. Like, it would mean something if he had the anger of uh, Boots Riley, you know, in... Mm. <laughs> or something like that. But, like, he is just this, like, centrist liberal who is, like... People should be less dumb. If only people were less dumb, then everything would be fine. And not really yeah. looking at things holistically. And so when he gets more overtly political, you roll your eyes. But when you get to something like Step Brothers, which is just that anger 
uh, expressed in the most unhinged, weird way. Um, yeah, exactly. With the like, least just amount again, of... Again, they're like... And again, they're based on characters that feel obviously exaggerated in their behaviors. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, I do kind of want them to, to, to get along and have a good relationship. Really? I do want the, I do want the parents to end up together. I don't really? know. It's like, that's yeah. funny. That's, I, yeah. I don't feel that way at all. I think that movie is like Freddie got fingered where it is just doing the Adam Sandler man child comedy, but just it, exploding it. So over the top that you can't possibly for the most part, take for the it most seriously. Part. For the most part, no. You, I think you're right. It's just that there is. Something. I mean, the dude wipes his ass with a bath mat, <laughs> <laughs> and then like his change is shown by him reading uh, a Montel book. <laughs> like, oh, I know, but like there, I think there's a weird, maybe subverted sweetness at the end. Like you know, oh, they got like look at what uh, the father did for them and got him Chewbacca masks. That's kind of nice. It's ridiculous That's and funny. silly. But I don't know, like, I'm not saying, like, oh, God, this movie is full of heart and, you know, pure sentiment or something. But I don't know. I thought, like, to some degree, I, I think that also we've talked about this before. Um, when Will Ferrell isn't playing the kind of character that he plays in uh, Anchorman, I think he's a million times better. I, I mean, yeah. something like the other guys, I think he's great, too. Yeah, low status Will Ferrell is the funniest Will Ferrell for sure. His yeah. uh, sort of pompous, uh, chauvinistic male characters, like in uh, Talladega Nights and Anchorman, they're just, it's a little too broad for me. He, I think he gets to something more subtle and interesting uh, when he is playing low status. Agreed. Agreed. And, and like, you know, John C. Riley, just c- c- comic genius that, you know, even way back when Paul Thomas Anderson made Boogie Nights, he, he, he sensed that in him. Like, he saw, he saw something like Casualties of War. And and kind of went. I I want to work with John C. Riley for some reason. I don't know what it. There's something about him. It could just be his He's, face. It's definitely his face. He looks like a five year old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and look what he brought out. You know, in him with Boogie Nights. And then next thing you know, he's you know in these great comedies like Walk Hard and Step Brothers. So I just uh, I I'm I'm almost feeling nostalgic for this period that's only like ten years ago. You know, it's it's kind of weird, but. Uh, I I just I, you know I've been also watching episodes of the state and it just sort of making me realize that I do like the digestible short film co- you know style of comedy that I you know I wish had worked better in something like the ten or movie forty three you know I I kind of wouldn't I wouldn't mind if somebody did a successful Kentucky Fried movie now but I I don't I don't know if you again it doesn't like the need lack to be though like the thing about uh, yeah. the thing about Kentucky Fried movie is that you could never do any of those sketches on TV in the, in the 70s No you're right so like yeah. that movie was outrageous and pushing boundaries in a way that was exciting in the 70s that's no longer exciting that's no longer the case you can do whatever you want on TV even on basic cable you can pretty much get away with any kind of sketch you want to do um yeah like even as recently as Chappelle's show was a was a sketch show that for me, uh, being in high school when it came out, like that movie felt like that felt like you had to watch every week because you couldn't get imagine what they were getting away with on TV, and it was like exciting and transgressive and dangerous in a way that was uh, sort of rare for the era. But nowadays that's just not the case, and sketch comedy doesn't need to be a movie. Like I know, like we're film people, so we want to watch films, but like. It, that format doesn't really benefit sketch comedy. It puts too much undue pressure on any given moment. Um, whereas if it's a TV show, 
uh, a mediocre sketch is just like, eh, whatever. But when it's part of a film, you're like, boy, that was a 10-minute stretch of that film that was bad. Um, no, so you're So it's right. just like, why, no. why make that risk? Yeah. No, I think so. I, 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 I'm more than happy to just, like, you know, peruse through and, and, and find the next good comedy show. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't keep up with something like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but there's a, a, a show that was mostly hit and miss for me, but when it hit, it was very funny. Man. And, you know, the same, the same goes for, you know, some other shows out there, but I, I think nowadays you just have to go to your streaming services and, uh, you know, you'll find something that you eventually will just, it'll click with you in the same way like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend did for me, where nearly everything about it worked. What you need to do and is get on those Vine compilations. You want short attention no. span, get on those Vine compilations. <laughs> Nothing's funnier than, uh, what's the guy's name? Who's Derek Stop? The guy who's kicking? That's the funniest, mm. that's the funniest sketch of the past I'll, 20 years. I'll start looking into these because you've mentioned this before, but I just... I think my experience has mainly been with TikTok because I had to download it for a media literacy class that I had, and I had to see some really bad things, <laughs> like just some people really trying so hard for that laugh, man. Or it's just like too staged. Vine was to me. Vine is a perfect thing because Vine existed for like three years, and then it was canceled at like the height of it, um, and it yeah. was only people were just really starting to codify what made a good vine and it was starting to become self-aware in a way that TikTok immediately became self-aware and people yeah, are trying exactly to it. people who were raised watching vine compilations are trying to purposefully recreate it instead of capture that magic and so everything feels too forceful everyone everyone feels too rich <laughs> it's like a bunch of upper middle class <laughs> yeah. kids it's like everyone has fucking marble kitchen islands it's it's uh whereas vine for me felt like a lot of uh people of color, like middle-class teenagers of color and stuff. were like finding a voice on that, that were really, and oh, that's that good. was interesting. Yeah. And, um, but like that also, because it was a hard six second limit and because it didn't have all those different filters to sort of like do the comedy work for you. Um, oh, yeah. the, only the people who are dedicated to learning how to use vine could do it. Well, that's why no old people, uh, made any good vines it, because the the way the actual technology was set up, it was like kind of weird and counterintuitive and you have to be like a teenager who has nothing but free time to get really good at it. So vine yeah, was, if, vine was like this perfect thing that all of the best vines have already been codified. If you look up a vine compilation, you're probably going to see the same 300 six second clips in every single one. Um, okay. And they're all they're And it's just, and it's just great, but it's also like, very good. I am stressed out and I am sad and I just want to watch something that helps me turn my brain off. Like little d stupid, goofy six second videos uh, are, are a good way to do that. So I'm not necessarily saying that uh, the next Billy Wilder was on Vine, but um, I could see that happening. But TikTok, TikTok the, definitely the, has an energy that, that, that you don't want to deal with. No, I, I, there's, I don't need to see, you know, even. I don't need to see like Reese Witherspoon, you know, in, in bunny ears dancing to a hip hop song. Right. I just, you know, that's the majority of TikTok was for me was just people trying to be really clever or pranks, you know, and I like a couple of them were almost offensive. Just, sure. You know, people sneezing and I, I'm just like, come on, that's dumb. The Zoomers, man, they don't care. They're out of control. No. This is it. This is no, the generation. Finally, we can look back and say, what the hell? Like these people, these kids are too much. They're out of control. 
I do have a prediction, though, that the third Unfriended movie will be called Unfriended Quarantine. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I can see this working out in some capacity, like a, a Zoom horror movie. Did you watch that SNL yeah. special? Yeah, I've. it was all right. Again, the, there were things I liked and things I didn't so much. I mean, they did their best. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, speaking of uh, stupid things that I enjoy... Uh, Wrestling in quarantine is wild. Um, so no audience. There right? is there's no audience. So you had WrestleMania last month, um, and that was just in a gym basically for no one. And the whole I like the whole thing about wrestling is they're working the crowd. Like literally the fake fighting that they do is called working. Like it's a worked punch, you know, because it is they are trying to goose the audience into emotional stakes. So it's one the bad the you know the good guy's losing and he keeps trying to come back and he doesn't quite and then the bad guy makes one mistake and then the good guy is able to come back and it's like this big moment and everyone in the crowd's going crazy and like that's basically the whole thing. So wrestling with no audience, it is so fucking weird and surreal I bet. and people and especially in the WWE where everyone is not adapting to the new reality, they're just doing the same shit. Like they're posing for nobody and they're like doing their like promos in this in the ring the same way and which is dead silence in between it's so wild and for me uh that was that snl bit where there's no audience laughter <laughs> anywhere and it's just a joke and then there'd just be like a second pause and you'd be like oh that's right their their, their sketch comedy and six are kicking in and everything feels so hermetic and dead that um mm. it just does not work that that style of uh comedy and I do wonder if uh, the next Unfriended would just be like, oh, there's too many of these now. Like, <laughs> there's going to be, you know, six months from now, we are going to see 7,000 uh, quarantine movies um, and movies that take place in Zoom calls or, like, that sort of thing. And I do wonder if, if, if people will be so sick of it that they won't want to see any of them. I hope not, because you're working on one. You're writing one, aren't well, you? I mean, and no one's going to see it anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, I, when, I make a, when I make a film, I put it on my Vimeo, and then no one sees it. So that doesn't matter, but uh, I'm just trying to keep busy. No, it's important, too. I mean, that's why I did the, uh, the um, you know, the, the covers. Of course, I, I put together this covers music project before I even knew I was going back to work, because I figured, oh, it'll be a, at least another month or so. <laughs> And I need something to do, and I really, really want to make some music. And then, of course, oh, you get to go back to work next week. Yeah. I went, damn it! But I'll, I'll do my best. I, I'm going to make it happen, even if it takes six weeks or whatever. Um, so I, I do. Before we go into Billy Wilder, there's one other thing I wanted to mention really quick. I've been reading this book, Paperbacks from Hell, by Grady Hendrix. Oh yeah, I've been meaning to read that. Oh, it's so I, good. I really like Grady Hendrix. So yeah, Grady yeah. Hendrix wrote My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is I'm not. I haven't read it. I'm not. A, big reader of horror novels uh so i but it's definitely the favorite one i've read in the past long time um and this is a non-fiction book he wrote about sort of the history of horror fiction in the 70s and 80s after the uh horror boom that happened from ira levin's rosemary's baby and you know stephen king's books and stuff like that there just became this massive market and it is amazing because it is a little bit of history. Like he gives context for what's happening in the industry and stuff, but it's not a lot of like interviews with authors, interviews with people in the industry or anything like that. It's mostly just him sort of uh, talking about different trends and the kind of plots and things that would happen in these books. 
and they all sound insane. Like he'll just casually, he has this great droll writing style where he'll just sort of casually talk about the most insane fever dream book plot you've ever heard in your life. Where it's just like, oh, of course, that was before the teenager chewed off her arm because a psychic doll told her to sew. Like, like he just keeps adding in these plot elements where it's just like, oh, well, you have to understand there were Nazi leprechauns living in the basement. Uh, and, wow. And it is hilarious. It is such a fun book. And it is, it's like, in, in terms of entertainment versus actual, like, history or, you know, literary criticism, it's way heavily uh, weighted in terms of entertainment. But it is absolutely wonderful and i'm having such a good time reading it. so uh, paperbacks from hell i'd really recommend yeah i enjoyed growing up reading like uh rl stein and christopher pike and like these these writers that did teenage horror, right you know and, and some of them got adapted into subpar uh films <clears throat> but um i think i i, I really enjoyed reading like just pulpy paperbacks that were all about uh, teenagers doing weird things. Yeah, that's and, sort of a that's yeah, like it, that's sort of an after like the main boom like in the seventies and eighties was more like based off you know the Exorcist and the Changeling and things like that. Um, yeah. Whereas okay. the the young adult stuff is uh, it, it's almost a uh, byproduct of that. I haven't finished the book, so maybe it'll get to that. But yeah, I read a bunch of Goosebumps books and other Fear Street R.L. Stein books in the nineties. And but like hey, because they're yeah. for kids, they're automatically not going to be as insane, <laughs> like as opposed <laughs> to like well, we have this uh, mucus that comes out of these alien slugs, and we're using them to mind control. Like we're using them as beauty products, but then it makes people mutate, and their face becomes a giant mouth, and it d- kills a cop. And like there's so much insanity in all of these books, and just his, the way he ta- talks about them, he's such a good writer, and he has such a good sense of humor. Um, not it's not just him talking shit about them. Like he, he has a love of them, but also uh, he understands how deeply silly they are. So that, that was a lot of fun. Those, those horror paperback novels sound pretty wild. Er, wilder than what you would normally see. <laughs> Is that what we're going Yeah. With? Pretty, pretty wilder than I would normally expect. That was uh, that was Billy Wilder's nickname in high school, Pretty Wilder, because he was he's so handsome. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he, he's yeah, he's like a teddy bear. You just want to hug him. Hey, Jim. Who is it? Billy Wilder. Wilder. We'll make that not Gene Wilder, but Billy. Not Van Wilder. I am Billy Wilder, 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 The silver screen protecting all my dreams. I am a wilder. Oh, yeah, Billy Wilder. Double indemnity, Sabrina. One, two, three. Fortune cookie, baby. I'm a Billy Wilder. Gonna meet all my friends like Jack Lemon in the apartment. Got an ace in the whole Kurt Douglas. Oh, shit, you're dead, William. Hold it. 
produce and a bounty to write a masterpiece of a Billy Wilder. So Patrick, so Jim, no, no, you, <laughs> shut up, shut up, Jim. Tell me, no, Don't no, 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 no. I'm not gonna tell. No, 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 no. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, you know, Billy yes. Wilder. Yes. I gotta say, if this was Screenwriters Club, we should probably just end it here and now because this is the pinnacle when it comes to uh, writing. I. I don't know if we've ever gotten a better writer to talk about. And certainly... In the specific thing that he does, there is no one better than him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, he's uh, somebody that I've loved for quite a while because I, I'd say that, you know, it was around maybe the late 90s or so that I became... A, it might have been, It might have been after Almost Famous or something where... Oh, Cameron Crowe, I you know a guy I really like, talked about Billy Wilder and you know I know he put out an entire book which I didn't get a chance to to get but uh, you know I just I just I started hearing the name a lot once I became more of a cinephile and uh, yeah I think it was around the late '90s where I finally went back and and watched The Apartment and you know we'll get to my love of that movie in general for a while it was pretty much my favorite movie it's still in my top twenty of all time. Uh, but yeah, he, he is an interesting guy because I don't know if he absolutely set cause he wasn't, you know, like your typical Tarantino cinema. I love movies. I love movies kind of guy. He just, he thought of screenwriting as a job, as a career. You know, he loves sitting in front of a typewriter or with his co-writer, you know, someone like Charles Brackett or I A L diamond, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he just, he loved the process of going to an office nine to five and inventing these characters and coming up with this pitch perfect dialogue. Uh, and, you know, he, he, you can tell that he loves it because yeah. like, there's so much effort that goes into it. He never phones it in. Even like his later films that don't work as well. There's a lot of effort uh, in the screenwriting. Right, right. And, you know, he was, he learned a lot from Ernst Lubitsch early on considered him a mentor and uh you know he fled nazi germany to come to hollywood and basically just said i think writing's what i'm here for (laughs) you know and he penned a lot of very sophisticated comedy romances of the 30s a a lot that i need to see like i hadn't realized some some titles you know like ball of fire or midnight are are really highly regarded works that he just wrote that I have yet to yet to catch up with, but I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Um, but he claimed that he he became a director to stop others from you know butchering his material, and you know he he often worked with writing partners, and at the same time like he never he was never anointed with like a you know Hitchcock style nickname or achieved like the auteur status of someone like John Ford, but he really came into his own. Uh, you know, after something like Double Indemnity and, you know, only things only got even better from there for I him. mean, he was, I, I, auteur status is something that was, you know, the French came up with later. But yeah, like, much in later, his yeah. day, Billy Wilder was revered and wildly successful. Wildly, yes. For sure. You know, and, and, and even watching, like, geez, I think I watched over a dozen films of his in the past 
uh, couple of months and kind of going through, I, I, I just went, man, even the films that don't work as well have moments or great dialogue or something about them that make them stand out from your typical, you know, romantic comedy or satire. And, you know, I couldn't help but think of how, God, how much he's influenced people like Alan Ball or James L. Brooks, these, these filmmakers who find comedy in the tragedy and, and vice versa, you know, and they find this right balance of humor and pathos that you kind of, you kind of just go, man, it, this is, how did he achieve, you know, this kind of perfection, even, you know, if he ends a movie saying nobody's perfect, I feel like a couple of his movies in particular are, are as close to perfect as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, his first movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. His first movie. Uh, <laughs> that he directed. It. Yeah. The first movie that he directed was uh, called The Major and the Minor. And yes, it is Minor Wilder, I gotta say. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just only because the, the plot is weird now because it involves like this, you know, grown woman who's, you know, Ginger Rogers, who's supposed to be like in her mid 20s. She passes herself off as a 12-year-old so she can get reduced train fare. Hell yeah. And, uh, you know, she winds up aboard um, and hiding out in, in Ray Milan's cabin or compartment. And mm, they start to develop a connection. And, you know, he's aware or, you know, he thinks of her as this 12-year-old cutesy girl acting, you know, like a 12-year-old should. So wackiness ensues and he decides to, like... You know, take her back to his house where you know his fiance is, and you know, it's it's some of it's funny, and because mainly because Ginger Rogers and Ray Milland are are great on screen, and clearly are movie stars doing great work. But you know, you can guess the ending a mile away, and I don't know. I just I kind of shrugged it off. If you're a completist, you'll at least get some joy out of watching these two actors and kind of Wilder finding his footing in a, like kind of Howard Hawks screwball comedy manner, but uh, it's, it's fine. And, but then, you know, like his progression over time just to continues to grow. And certainly after the success of sunset Boulevard, nobody I think was prepared, including audiences for what we're going to talk about first here. Ace in the hole. Sure. Uh, huh. I, I I like the title The Big Carnival better. Um, that was the you know original title, but I think Wilder kind of felt the opposite. And I mean, I feel film, like the Big Carnival, like the movie is already so on its on the fate, like on the nose. Actual, absolutely, just about what it is about. Um, it's so. I feel like Ace in the Hole is a little punchier if we're gonna if we're concerned with picking the sure, title. Sure, sure. Like to be the big carnival, it would have been maybe a step too far as far as just like, yeah, we get it. Uh you know, you're 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 gilding the lily here. So I do think Ace in the Hole is my preferred title. Yeah, I I gotta say, like, watching this now, nothing says America like Ace in the Hole. Um you know, it's you, you get the sense that at this time Wilder truly understands the fascist mentality and what it means to perpetu- perpetuate propaganda uh, using the media. And if, if you watch this today, it, it just plays like it, it could have been made today. And th- that goes for something like Face in the Crowd, which, 
you know, both of those films are very critical of journalistic integrity and, you know, what it means to exploit others rather than doing any actual good. Um, and it, it's also a very strange movie to watch right now, like in regards to the response of those in power who just seem to care less about human lives and more about financial profit. You know, it's it's kind of eerie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about but, it is it's like the the thing about Ace in the Hole that is almost kind of quaint now is that it is a bad reporter. <laughs> it is like yeah 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 yeah. It is. It's not really about. Um, it's it's and and in this movie, it's basically saying like there are always going to be bad actors. There are always going to be people who have no morals who will do whatever they need to do to get what they want. Um, like mm. that. The the real thing it's concerned with, and it's you know it's. The th- real thing it has its crosshairs on is that the American public is so stupid that they will immediately fall for it and eat it up and will, you know, turn everything into a circus. It's all of the crowds that is, like, especially cinematically, the way that big empty space, they they first run into um, the man who's stuck in the uh, the cave. They run into his wife and she's walking down there and they're like, all right, we'll hop in, we'll drive you there. And... You know, they drive this like vast, you know, like football field or whatever of this of this empty place where, you know, it's clear this is just a small town where basically no one lives, you know, to take her there to see what's going on in the cave. And then by the end of it, that is entirely packed with people and like the most craven uh, sort of uh, capitalist exploitation as far as like people writing novelty songs about him and this and that. And like <laughs> the like it's not like Billy Wilder is less sort of mad at Kirk Douglas because every other journalist in the movie is other than like the the naive young rookie who doesn't quite know uh you know what he's getting himself into like every other journalist in that movie has integrity so that is a movie about like the system isn't really the issue the problem is there's this one bad guy who understands that the American public it can be manipulated so easily um and it's really like the unthinking public that will just digest anything that the media gives them uh, and and accept the narrative that is given to them about the real events, um, which is where the movie gets its power. Yeah, but like his behavior is, is essentially a kind of like a virus that seeps into everybody around him, you know, and it's just like just uh, like the, the, the wife of the man that's trapped in the cave just becomes more concerned about her restaurant. But she know? was always like that. Like, from the very beginning, like, when yeah, she hears that he's stuck right, in the yeah. cave, she goes like, God, idiot. Like, of course he's stuck in the cave. She doesn't seem particularly... Like, she's going to take off while he's still in there. The only reason she even yeah. sticks around is because she's manipulated. Not even manipulated by him. They're both sort of on the same page as far as what can we do to benefit ourselves. That's but everyone else, that everyone else yeah. who isn't corrupt is, you know, the sheriff... You know, the sheriff is a person in power, and Billy Wilder is very skeptical of people in power. So the fact that the sheriff is is corrupted is not necessarily seen as a fall from grace. But like the boy's parents are still the boy's parents; like they're they don't change as a as a result of it. The newspaper journalist from uh, you know the the guy who runs the newspaper from Albuquerque he he isn't swayed by it. All of his reporter buddies from all the other big cities that would be an opportunity for Billy Wilder to say like this is how the way Kirk Douglas is acting is the way how all newspaper men are acting, but they are absolutely not that they are, you know, there might be a little bit of self-interest in wanting to get the interviews and stuff, but they kind of see what he is doing and they, they think it is gross. Um, they're not like, 
the, the tone there isn't they're envious that he got there first. And they're like, man, this is exactly what we would do. They're looking at it and being like, you are fucking repulsive. No wonder you got run out of town. So, yeah, it's interesting to talk about the, the initial response to it, too, because I know the Hayes Code really objected to just the depiction of, a, you know, a, a police officer being that corrupt and that morally bankrupt, you know, like at the time, I think I think just the the general response was shock that a film could get this dark and be this cynical and not have any light at the end of the tunnel. No, and, and, you're, and there's no one to root for. There isn't, like, right. a good person who is, you know, the, the foil to Kirk Douglas who's trying to talk him back into the light. There, Kirk Douglas is the center of the film, and it is all about... Yeah, he's a force of nature in this. It is all about him as this as this manipulator of people, and... It is. It's almost a procedural. It's like how to manufacture a crisis. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's 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 pretty wild to think about this, and then you know later on something like wag the dog, per, you know, and like there's so many real life parallels. I think that people can make to this story. That you know, I, obviously this took from a real life story mm-hmm. that Wilder was inspired by. Yeah, the story of W. Floyd Collins is even name-dropped in the film, which is another thing about all of Billy Wilder's movies that I find really interesting. Um, compared to all you know the other films that they're contemporaries with, they all take place in the real world, um, mm. um, which is to say that their touchstones are real-world pop-cultural touchstones. When they mention an actor, it's a real actor. They'll often have cameos of people playing themselves, especially like something like Sunset Boulevard is full of that. Um, yeah. The, you know, people turn on the TV and the apartment and Grand Hotel is playing and it's all these movie stars that, you know, any that it's the actual thing that would be playing there. He goes to see The Music Man, which was actually a big Broadway hit at the time. Um, even though Billy Wilder movies are very mannered, they're not really going for any kind of naturalism. The dialogue is always the most heightened, cracking uh, sort of patter, you know. Um, and but like he wants them to take place in the real world. He wants them to feel real. There's always you know even the w- wackiest comedies. There's establishing shots that are shot on location in real places. Um, this is obviously is mostly shot on location. Um, yeah, even some of the more you know outlandish characters, they, they still feel a little. They still feel grounded in some kind of reality. I think. And yeah, and it's a, there's that, an interesting um, sort of tension between the heightened world, like this movie. Like almost, it doesn't make any. It, it, not that it doesn't make any sense that you could you could watch this movie and watch the events that are happening and believe that they're actually happening. But like, it, there's no traditional drama. <laughs> like, there's not really a person you're rooting for. There's not really like stakes uh, in the traditional sense of storytelling. This is an expose, more or less. Um, and so they it. So that that format comes with it uh, a bit of a heightened reality. So, and obviously, when he's doing a screwball comedy in some like it hot, if he's doing uh, things like that, he he's working in you know the the, the prison uh, sort of comedy in Stalag Seventeen. Like he's working in formats that are generic and are supposed to feel more fantastical, and the way that Hollywood is supposed to be sort of selling escapism. Uh, but yeah. he doesn't allow that escapism. He always roots it in a dark reality. And part of the darkness is, you know, thematic and in the characters and stuff. And then part of the reality is just the fact that this is a real world where W. Floyd Collins already happened. And, you know, he's talking about Lindbergh and he's and it, it feels like it's 
the real world in a way that's really interesting for Hollywood movies of this time. Yeah, and at the same time, like I, I, I will say, like as a director, I think he's just incredible with working with actors, of course. But you know, I never think of like, oh man, look at that amazing tracking shot or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are amazing moments as a director, I would say, but a lot of them do feel like plays, and I, that doesn't bother me. I think because the material is strong and the acting is strong, um, you know, yeah, maybe not so much with something like the Seven Year Itch, which. I don't understand why it's as beloved as it as it, people claim it to be. I, I don't mean, think it, it is. Has, I think it's influential, and I think it has a big pop culture landmark. I don't think people really claim it's a great film. Yeah, but it's mostly just two people talking or three people talking in an apartment at certain instances, and yeah, I mean that's he, not always interesting. He drives the story with dialogue, but when you say you know you you mentioned earlier that he became a he says he became a director to protect his screenplays, and that is how he directs like. He yeah. has a very specific idea of how things should play, specific moments. He has absolute clarity, and this is because he's directing his own material, What, why things are happening and how they should be shot um, to get that the most powerful version of that. Like, Some Like It Hot is a very silly movie, and it's not a movie where you're like, oh, there's so much interesting thematic content, and you're really caring about the characters. Like, It's just a rampant farce. But even the yeah. way he shoots specific jokes, like when the gangsters come into the garage and sh- kill the mechanics, um, like it's it's scary because they're supposed to be a force of tension and fear in that world. So like mm-hmm. when they come in, it almost looks like Gestapo. Like it, it is drawing on these images uh, that are sort of more powerful and more frightening than you would necessarily need for that kind of comedy. But he just knows yeah, I'm sure what... He, he exp- I'm sure he experienced that, too. Like, you know, and he knows for, what that yeah. moment's supposed to feel like. When Kirk Douglas, you know, lights his match with the with the typewriter, he understands that it's not just, like, a neat little thing for the actor to do with their hands. He's saying something about the character. He's saying something about how comfortable he is in that environment, how the machines are second nature to him, and also like kind of how callously he thinks of the written word and like all of those things are told in that little gesture of him lighting his lighting his match with the uh, typewriter and so he knows yeah. how to shoot it to get that across and so there are he's, moments he's the master of show don't tell right too. you learn so much about the character just by that action he's not he's not a anthony man where he wants to play with specific visual ideas of light and shadow and stuff like that or um you know, he he is someone who he just knows what the screenplay needs and he can do it. Like, again, the big thing in Ace in the Hole is that crowd and the way he shoots it is dizzying. That is, yeah. to me, the most powerful part of the movie. Like, I feel it's a little too heavy handed to be super powerful as a work of, you know, as a work of expose into um, if not if not the unscrupulous nature of journalists, because it does seem to say that most journalists do their jobs correctly like at least it's an expose into the bottomless well of american stupidity and just (laughs) how gullible of people they are and just how dangerous crowds can be um again as as someone who escaped from nazi germany these are perhaps themes that are of interest to him um and i'd say so so like when you know when you mentioned when you mentioned kirk douglas sort of operating like a fascist i'd never thought about that but i think you're absolutely right like there is I think, uh, you know, not only did Billy Wilder work as a newspaper man, he also worked as a newspaper man in Germany while everything was going to shit. And he absolutely saw how easily the crowds can be swayed. And he saw how dangerous that could be. And the stakes are not just one death, but many. And, you know, this is 
it's it's so forceful that it could make me roll my eyes because it doesn't have the subtlety and nuance and wit of a, the apartment or some of other Billy Wilder's more interesting works, even a noir film like uh, Double Indemnity. The way the way the characters play is so much more subtle and interesting than the way a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff that happens in Ace in the Hole is. Oh yeah, it's definitely big. You know, I mean, Kirk Douglas plays it big. Yeah, yeah. And, Which is like, but again, I feel like it fits. The, it fits the tone. Yeah, yeah. Me, That's what know? the movie needs. The movie needs a big Kirk Douglas performance. You need to. You need to see his little smirk as he tells the tow truck driver, "Wait here." <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, that motherfucker. He's getting his car towed, and he's giving the tow truck driver instructions. Like, you have to know instantly who that person is. Um, also, the another thing about Billy Wilder movies is they all open amazingly. That's something that. Bill Hader oh, hosted God. a block of movies on TCM once, and one of the movies was the Five Graves to Cairo, and that and he and that movie opens kind of similar. In this one, he's in a car that's being towed, and that sort of tells you everything you need to know about his character. In Five Graves to Cairo, it's a it's a guy who works in a tank, American uh, or no, uh, British or American uh, British soldier who works in a tank who's part of a tank outfit, and the tank is just rolling along in the desert with everyone except him dead inside. And it's oh, just wow. like this really brutal, amazing moment. And he just kind of like falls out of the tank and crawls right into a nest of Nazis uh, officers in Africa. And so like that oh. movie opens and you instantly are grabbed by the throat and you're like, holy shit, what's going to happen next? And like Ace in the Hole does that too. Double indemnity with the guy who's dying, narrating what how he got there. Like Billy Wilder really knows how to grab you. They open up Stalag 17 with the... Uh, you know, where you learn about William Holden's character by him betting against the guys escaping. Like, there's so much... Uh, there's He's so good at very quickly roping you into the story and wanting you to know what the character's deal is or what's how they're going to get out of it, what's going to happen next. Um, and Yeah, and you, you mentioned great openings, but I, 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 I will happily say that he knows how to end a movie oh, yeah. in pretty much every regard. It's yeah. like the perfect line, uh, the perfect character gesture, or in the case of Ace in the Hole, just the character collapsing right in front of the camera, which I believe Spike Lee might have used for Malcolm X at one point. Uh, there's no doubt that Spike Lee's a huge fan of Ace in the Hole sure. when you think of something like Bamboozled. Uh, and, you know, like that, 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 that sort of, you know, preachiness... Lack of subtlety, and you know, I, I, for some reason, with Ace in the Hole doesn't bother me. Whereas, like something like Network, it kind of does, mm-hmm. where it's like the messages are being rammed down your throat. Well, Network like, is this didactic. is bad. This is what's really bad about yeah, America. Network and, is didactic know. in a way that Ace in the Hole's not. Ace in the Hole doesn't yeah, yeah, have yeah. a speech explaining like, don't you understand, kid? This is how it works. What about that? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily spell out its themes in that way. It's just that the story is so simplistic and it's so just one specific thing happening that you're going to mm-hmm. get the point, um, even if no character has a speech saying what the point is. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. I, 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 I do really love the yeah, moment of I mean, him going up there and telling everybody that Leo's died. And, you know, I feel like that's that's Wilder's voice in there, too, because, you know, it, from from the, the, the short documentary I saw, uh, he, you know, Wilder comes across to me as someone who is self-critical but he does have this special kind of uh loathing for the human race for being sycophants and hypocrites and these selfish sheep so it's almost like that that speechy moment of him going up to tell everybody i feel it that's that's wilder's voice yeah sort of condemning the human race for being what they are 
to some degree, you know, and that's, I, I, I really do find that interesting and just, uh, you know, how things play out and watching someone like Kirk Douglas's character just, you know, be poisonous, but also like really conscious of his moral downfall. Like he, he knows what's happening to him and that sort of self-awareness I feel like is that that's something that he's really good at capturing is just a character's self-awareness of what they're doing even when it's wrong. He's really good at that. There is yeah, there's definitely a lot of that in William Holden's two uh, roles in Stalley. Well, that's not not so much Stalley 17. Oh, yeah. One of the great things about Stalley 17 is that William Holden the entire movie is unrepentant. He, there is no moment where William Holden realizes that he should be good. He just mm-hmm. he finds a way to be cynical and self-serving in a way that help accidentally helps everyone else, but he's not looking out for anyone else really. Um, so that's like one of the things that makes Stalag Seventeen so interesting. But like, definitely Sunset Boulevard. There's that self-awareness, um, double indemnity. And it, it because it's all told in retrospect narration. There's that, of course. Before the word, you know, toxic's been used, you know, so much now lately in our culture. Toxic relationships are just all over his films, you know, and you, you think of just what happens between um, uh, Chuck and uh, Lorraine in, in Ace in the Hole and, you know, Sunset Boulevard. That's obviously becoming a, a very toxic relationship for them. And, the, you know, in the apartment, it's not nearly as toxic, but it's, you know, it's questionable as to... You know, we'll get to that film, but I'm in general, it's just yeah. I think he's really good at capturing these types of relationships that s- might seem healthy, but they're really not. And well, that's part of his misanthropy, isn't it? Isn't it? it yeah, it's yeah. like he views human relationships as inherently transactional. Someone is getting mm. something out of someone else. Um, yeah, and you know, he can play that for laughs in in something like one, two, three. Um, but he, you know, if you look at it, you know, it's really tragic and you take it seriously. Then you look at Sunset Boulevard where just everyone is using each other in the most pathetic ways and everyone's sort of exposing each other, uh, for just how rotten they really are. Um, yeah. So I think, I don't think think audiences weren't prepared for this type of, uh, critique of the human experience and relationships. I think Ace in the Hole was... Not well regard. Well, I I don't know if it I don't know if it got critical success or not, but it was. I think audiences certainly walked out perplexed. Well, there's no spoonful of sugar, is there? You know, like the apartment is very romantic at the end. The apartment goes in horrendously dark places um, and explores like you know pathetic relationships as well. But like, it is very funny. Um, you know, you have a movie like uh, even Double Indemnity, there's the spoonful of sugar in just that it is a genre film and it is absolutely in the tradition of The Postman Always Rings Twice and films like that, like, or, yeah. or, or fiction like that even. Um, and so, like, people can take that, you know, people can take uh, really nasty, dark stuff as long as it is hidden and smuggled in and ace in the hole. There's no smuggling. It's just all right there. That's sort of like the thing that makes it, uh, so much less subtle than his other movies. Um, but it's also what makes it so forceful and powerful when it gets there. Yeah. And in something like sunset Boulevard, that ending is more of like a bittersweet feeling because like, Oh, she's kind of getting what she wants, but not in the right way. I mean, she's clearly, you know, delusional and has lost her sense of self and her identity. Uh, but that, that's an interesting movie to watch. And especially with my mom, who is like, 
Gloria Swanson's eyes are doing way too much. <laughs> like, you know, it's almost like... She, but to me, I find that performance in, in, consistently compelling because she... I mean, she might play it big, but she's playing that for a reason because that's what she's used to being. Sure. I mean... In, as, a, as a character. I will I will say that, like, for me, Sunset Boulevard, I rewatch it, and watching all of Billy Wilder's movies in a row, you... Uh, at least I've sort of come to realize that he has uh, issues when writing female characters. Um, I would say so. They are, I would say so. They, like, all of the, his, like, he's, as a misanthrope, like, all of his characters are kind of rotten in some way or another, but you are never asked to relate to or root for the women in the same way. Um, at best, you're asked to pity them, like in the case of uh, Shirley MacLaine in uh, The Apartment or Sunset, or uh, Gloria Swanson's Sunset Boulevard. And, like, I do think that movie, considering all of the depth and nuance that William Holden gets as rotten as he can be in that movie. Like you still get to empathize with him way more and you, st- and he still gets the moment where he realizes what he's doing. Whereas Gloria Swanson is basically like Frankenstein's monster or something like she's so <laughs> yeah. over the top. She is just this like creature. And, and you know, part of that you can say, you can read that as like, this is Billy Wilder's critique of women in Hollywood. Like the amazing thing about that is she's not 70. She's like in her fifties. Like, right. No I know at one point why. she's like, I'm, I'm old. And she's like 50. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Like but back then, obviously like she's might like, have that. like the movie kind of plays cause Billy Wilder, you know, you, because Billy Wilder got to do what he wanted because not only became a director of his own scripts, but he became a producer of his own films that he's directing. Um, and once he went to United Artists, so like you get a really, he had sort of the kind of creative freedom that few people in those days of Hollywood got. Um, and so one of the things that happens when men have a lot of creative freedom is you get to know what their sexual appetites look like because that's the kind of women they cast as sexy. And so like mm-hmm. he likes big bosomy blondes, uh, you know, who are sort of bimbos or whatever. Like that's just, that, that's just a thing throughout all of these movies, uh, you know, the Marilyn Monroe type is absolutely his type. Uh, so, like, when she is trying to be seductive in Sunset Boulevard, it is supposed to play as grotesque. But I'm looking at her and being like, she's 50. She's not a monster. She's not a mummy. <laughs> like, she doesn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, she's not as attractive as some of the women that William Holden would be with, I'm sure. But, like, let's let's be real here. This this movie's making her out to be, you know, there there's another version of Sunset Boulevard that has more empathy for Gloria Swanson. And I don't think it necessarily works against it. Like, that movie still absolutely works because she represents so much more than a human being. Like, there's so there's so many thematic things that are going on that her larger-than-life performance, like, helps carry a lot of that. So it's not necessarily a bad choice, but it is certainly erring on the side of, well, she's this crazy lady, <laughs> um, which is yeah, a little diminishing. And, I, and my mom felt like it's... She's a little too crazy, but... I, I mean I still I still am a hundred percent on board for for that film despite the fact that yeah I mean he's he doesn't always fully flesh out his female characters and definitely focuses more on the internal struggle that William Holden's going through and so the other thing about it, Sunset Boulevard to me that's really funny is that uh, William Holden's narration kind of to me is implying the type of screenwriter he is which is to say he is a hack. <laughs> B movie, like his 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 narration is so purple and florid and just like uh, over the top and ridiculous. Like I talked to a couple yes men from Paramount. To me, they said no. Like he's <laughs> like it's like it's so it's kind of ridiculous in a way that 
to me, the whole movie is pitched in that way where it's like, uh, true Hollywood expose. It's this thing that Hedda Hopper writes after all of the events, uh, when she's in the bedroom. Um, so like the fact that everything is a little broader than it would otherwise be just, it's, it, it's not supposed to feel quite as real. Cause again, there's that frisson between, you know, that's really Cecil B. DeMille and they're really going on the Paramount's, you know, back lot. You have those real Paramount gates and, uh, and this is really how a set operates, uh, so you have this reality to it, but then also the the story being told is so overblown and over the top um, that uh, it kind of, you know, if, if you're saying her performance is too big because it's not naturalistic, it's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not naturalistic, but I don't think that's really what it's called for. Right, right. And in the same way with Ace in the Hole and Kirk Douglas. Yeah. But I, I think with the success of something like Some Like It Hot... I think he wanted to move maybe into more of a humanist direction. And I know that uh, the original working title for the apartment was your vice is a locked apartment and only I have the key. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think he was inspired though, mainly from watching another great movie. That's also a favorite of mine, brief encounter. Because in that movie, you know, the, a married man has an affair with a married woman, and he uses his friend's apartment. And Wilder became curious about, well, who the who was the friend that was loaning out this apartment for 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 this little rendezvous in this particular film? And so he sort of went with that. And you know, obviously, after working with Jack Lemmon on Some Like It Hot and having a blast, he wanted to you know cast Jack Lemmon again for the lead. And holy cow, did they make the ultimate romantic dramedy that, yes. to me, is... I've always said this, don't at me, but the two best screenplays ever written are The Apartment and Broadcast News. I, that's Don't at me, people. That is fact. <laughs> you know that the, ending of, that. You know the I, ending of Broadcast News includes the, is in, was in the screenplay, right? I know, I know. I, maybe it was. I, I, yeah, I, I don't mind it. It's fine. You don't mind but, uh, it, it's fine, equals greatest screenplay of all time, <laughs> is all I'm going to say. Okay. Well, the majority, 90% sure. of broadcast news uh, is perfect, but um, it's a Remember hard at the, the end of the apartment where she goes, shut up and deal, and then it flash forward 10 years and they meet up with Fred oh. McMurray and he's like, boy, that sure was crazy when all that happened. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> we'll have the James L. Brooke episode eventually. Maybe. Um it's a it's a hard movie for me to talk. The apartment is a hard movie for me to talk about because it, it it's hard not to watch this movie and think of how much I'm like Jack Lemmon <laughs> and wanting to help people even if it's not helping me sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I won't go into too much. That's detail a dangerous road to go down because Jack Lemmon in this movie is real pathetic. Mm, yeah. Really? You you so don't think he's pathetic? Like to me, that's the defining characteristic okay, is that he is well, like such a pushover. And like he just takes it, gets taken advantage of every step of the way. Okay, well maybe I, I, I wouldn't say now. I, I think I've learned lessons. Oh, I'm not saying anything about you. I'm talking about Jack <laughs> Lemmon in the film. That's why I said it's yeah, a dangerous I know, road to go down. I guess. I mean, I, I, I honestly would say I'm, a, I was a more of a pushover than I am today. But it's, it's still. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go into great detail involving a situation I experienced with an apartment, but I will say that, uh, in, you know, it's you, 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 th you think you're doing something good for somebody else. 
and you think you're being selfless, but it's actually unhealthy, you know, and, and to some degree, like, I, I really like the fact that he's making spaghetti and, you know, he's not much of a cook and he has to use a tennis racket as a strainer. He's just there to try and help her out, even though you can argue that maybe she shouldn't be there at all. Uh, like she should be under doctor's care or recovering at home or something, but she, you know, I, I th- but the, he's also overly worried about her in that moment. Wow. That's you know? so interesting uh, to me. That you, I don't like, know. That's but how he, you I read that, that whole section of the movie. Because for me, he's a bootlicker. For me, that is like him at his absolute worst. Because he is like obviously he cares about her, but he is so willing to put his own feelings aside and even maybe feelings for what would be best for her. Like she just tried to kill herself. This is not a healthy relationship. We see in with Fred. She's in with Fred McMurray, and he is right. still trying to push her back into a relationship with him because he is such a just like bootlicker employee looking out for his career. Like the idea that you frame Hmm. that as only altruistic, like he's not a bad guy. He's just, again, he's just kind of pathetic in that like he allows his, uh, his desire to advance in his career and also to not rock the boat, to not have any confrontation, to not stand up for themselves, like overwhelm his good sense into what actually she needs in that moment. That's true because it is precipitated by the you know the phone call with his boss and like thinking I got to make sure like if he had you know, any this doesn't if he get had out. any delusions that Fred McMurray gives a shit about her that phone call should have killed it but it doesn't because he is in denial uh like to me this movie is amazing but like th- so this movie is the great romantic dramedy as you said but the thing about it is I was watching it kind of dreading it because there's a lot of tropes in this movie that uh, the way that Shirley MacLaine is sort of just like, oh, she's so bubbly, bubbly and quirky and, you know, irreverent. Manic and, pixie dream girl. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily want to use that phrase for her in this because she has more depth in this than a lot of characters but follow. Oh, yeah, but like, for sure. It for feels sure. like inspiration to a trope that would later do it really poorly. And like Jack Lemmon in this movie really portrays all the three dimensions of Baxter of Baxter's character. Like he really portrays not just that he is, you know, he thinks he's doing the right thing and he's a little wrongheaded in it, but like he also portrays that he can, you know, given a little bit of power, he instantly goes to his head and he's just like, uh, he, you know, the way when he gets his dumb office where he's the a second assistant uh, like he is, he so has no power in that company. But he like start, suddenly starts talking a big game, and he has all the confidence. And he like blows himself up because he puts all of his worth into, like honestly, his dealing with all the other executives should have told him how bullshit that world is, and how being approved in that world is not going to is not worth anything. Um, yeah, yeah. But like he totally buys into the myth, which is not a not a failing of the screenplay. That is absolutely true to life. Like that is. That you can. I think people do. Yeah, that, no, yeah. absolutely. So he's deluded, and and he, in a way that is very maybe relatable. That you can always delude yourself uh, into thinking that you have more power than you do in a labor sort of context. This movie is also it's a very interesting uh, uh, labor dynamics in terms of employer employee. Um, so he is this. He's this guy who is so full of failings, and then I feel like a lot of comedies that followed only took. He's a nice guy. And and why won't the woman sleep with the nice guy? Why does she always like the bad guy? And, like, that is a really sexist, shitty trope. And 
that leads to yeah, a lot of very reductive that leads to yeah. a lot of men being like i don't understand i was friends with you for years and you won't sleep with me like fuck you like like it just, it's just a shitty again transactional i never got to yeah i never got to that place in my <laughs> in my thinking with relationships but you like know, I, so like there's a lot of tropes that this movie that sort of come out of this movie people I mean, part of it is just like Jack Lemmon is the greatest actor of all time, so he can he can do it in a way that not any given indie film actor can do it. Um, yeah, and can pull off all that nuance. And he has a script by you know he has the greatest script by the greatest screenwriter of all time. So it's just like it's just a needle that gets thread perfectly in this film. So I was kind of watching this with dread, being like, oh god, I can't deal with nice guy Jack Lemmon, and why can't she just see that the real good guys beside her all along. But that's not the movie at all. He is not a nice guy. He is, uh, he's misguided, and I think he ultimately has a good heart, but he does a lot of shitty things in the meantime. Okay. No, I, I will agree he's misguided, and I, I feel like he's got good intentions, just not the greatest execution, you know? And, or he overlooks things, and like you say, he's in denial. I, mean, I think he tells I think, himself he has I good intentions. To, when, I think that happens to people. Like after her suicide you know? attempt, him taking care of her, I think he think is deluding himself into thinking he has good intentions, but he doesn't. His intentions are to get her back with the guy who mistreats her, and he is just so not there. Like maybe you could call that good intentions, but for me, at a certain point, uh, it's like it's emotional negligence is <laughs> its, it's yeah. its own issue. Um, yeah, no, that's that's. That's also what the movie's about. It's, I mean, this is know, like this is the kind of thing of I talked about. The American Dream. Yeah, this is the kind of thing I talked about with Ace in the Hole in terms of there not being any nuance there. Like, I think they're three dimensional people. I think Fred McMurray. You don't. I, I I appreciate that Fred McMurray is not given a way to. Oh well, you know, deep down he's a good guy. He wants he he cares about his kids and wants to take care of them. Like Fred McMurray is just a, no. He's a total dick. Yeah, Fred McMurray's the fucking worst. Uh, but more importantly, he's not. He's not like a cackling villain about it. He doesn't. He's not snide about it. He is just totally blase. Yeah, he's subtle. He's so ignorant. Yeah. Like that character is just. It. It's just everything's always been handed to him, and the idea that he shouldn't immediately get whatever he wants in any given moment has just never occurred to him. And it's so real in a way that even though it's not necessarily like you're, it, it, the audience is not conflicted on his character, but it still is given more reality in three dimensions because of the specific way that that character is sculpted. Um, and it's the same thing with Shirley MacLaine. I do think like part of what makes this movie work is that Shirley MacLaine picks up a lot of slack where her character, maybe her character is not given all of the depth on the page. And just in her few little uh, monologues, like she picks up all of that slack and makes the character real where if it was a different actor, you might look at this movie as sexist. Um, yeah, no, that's definitely true. I, it's, I think initially they thought like, well, let's get Marilyn Monroe back in this, but that wouldn't have worked at all. No. You know, I think, I think you find somebody like Shirley MacLaine and you, you, you realize that she's appealing, but also, you know, p painfully human. And also like the, the greatest line of dialogue for me, you know, is when you're in love with a married man, you shouldn't wear mascara. And the way she delivers that in the moment, knowing, and knowing the context and everything that, cause he's, he's so good at attention to detail yeah. in this, with showing and not telling like the cracked mirror yeah. or, or just like you know, uh, when, when Jack Lemmon's at the bar and there are just five olives on toothpicks next to him. <laughs> um, yeah. There's, there's no, tons exactly. of little storytelling detail. Like there's stuff at the party that is just, yeah. Like you said about the cracked mirror and um, 
there, there's all these little again this is this is Billy Wilder he's telling the story through the dialogue but he also knows how to tell the story how to tell a story visually um you know this could not be a play really it jumps so so no. much in time and place and stuff like that this needs to be a film um the uh the, the I think I think the thing about this movie that's really interesting is uh Billy Wilder has two of Hollywood's like all-time great actors at their very peak and they are playing like the best version of the thing that they had been working with um uh, like this is this mm. is a very Jack Lemon kind of character the sort of neurotic nebbish uh you know but also like insanely graceful balletic physical movements and um his ability the thing that makes Jack Levin such a great comic actor is he you re- when he wants you to feel sorry for him you really feel sorry for him but also he can be a total creepy shit as well like he's not just purely pathetic and sentimental like there is a real nastiness somewhere inside that character that is human and real um and yeah, I never thought of him as being creepy. Not cre- like I just, I, I mean, generally Jack Lemon is able to get really nasty in films. Like he's a, when, yeah. Oh no, 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 like, no for like, sure. So like Glenn, Gary, that, Glenn Ross is a great example of, that's exactly what I was yeah, going to yeah. say. Like yeah. he's a pathetic character, but as soon as he thinks that he's on top, he just instantly gets smug. And that is a thing that happens in a lot of Jack Lemon movies where you feel pathetic for him. And then, and then at a certain point he gets overconfident and then you're, and then that's only, setting you up so you feel more pathetic for him later. Um, again, I don't, I don't right. think he's a creep in this movie. I don't think he is a quote-unquote nice guy who is owed anything. I, I think he is just really pathetic and uh, deluded and um, I think... Lonely, too. You know, I mean, he's well, I mean, just, you know, I think he, watching he that is letting his value system and... be dictated by his job um and the kind of person and mm-hmm, the kind of choices mm-hmm. he makes i think are dictated by that career um and i think he is deluding himself into thinking that that is be him being nice like he's thinking that he's doing both he isn't going well uh, i came to a moral quandary and i've decided to choose my career over being a good human being i think he's so deluded he thinks having being advancing in business is being a good human being um which is really interesting because again when you mix Work when that work life balance gets off base. Um, that's like why when you have a low wage job, they say you're a team member. They don't say you're an employee because they're trying to make you feel like you're part of a team or a family or something. Because they're trying to trick you into mm-hmm. not giving you the money you deserve. <laughs> and like, they, and so like, yeah. this is a movie that is actually very astute observations on the corporate world and capital. Like that first shot again. Billy Wilder knows exactly how to shoot a moment and get across everything he needs to get across. And that first shot of him as this, like, uh, sort of just one in a row of endless thousands at their little typewriters. Um, And he stays after and he works hard and stuff because he has made his entire, you know, he he has given so much to this company that he is allowing himself. He like he's homeless, basically. (laughs) Like he has given everything to this company. He's sleeping in the park and getting a cold over it. Um and he has convinced himself that that's him being a nice guy because then we're all the team here. We're all friends, you know. Um, when these people do not, that's give true. A shit you're about part him. of the. You're part of the team. You're you're part of the, you know. Collective yeah, they call him. You're they call him buddy you're... boy. Like they're his father. Like he ha- he immediately <laughs> falls into a father son role with these with these men. Um, yeah, that is really interesting. I know. That's. Yeah, I I, I understand. Like, oh, I have this terrible cold, but I'm still going to go into work because I don't want to let people mm-hmm. down. Kind of a kind of a feeling, but 
also like uh you know <laughs> jack lemon actually really did have a bad cold while filming and that the nasal spraying out was you know like jack lemon's contribution to that scene and that wilder approved of it was like the only improvised moment but i uh i, I like the, the weird thing to me is seeing this described as you know the great american comedy when it's t- it's totally a dramedy yeah. to me. I mean, I, that term isn't really as, as used. You know, it's in not. Like, you it's know, not a real. Like, whatever, but. It's a way to describe a sensibility, but it's not actually a genre. Because I'm not like laughing out loud through this entire movie. I was. La- I mean, you know? I'm I mean, laughing pretty loud at some of the shit that Jack Levin is pulling off. Like, uh, well, yeah. Um, that's the other thing I think this movie contributed that a bunch of other movies tried to rip off and don't do as well because they don't have Jack Lemmon to do it, which is the long sequence of a character doing mundane things in like a kitchen or whatever. Like I, as, oh, as someone who writes screenplays, like I do that shit all the time. And it turns out most of the time when you see a movie and you just spend a long time watching a character go through like the daily motions or whatever, it's kind of dull because they're not Jack Lemmon. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that Cameron Crowe tried to do that with like Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire or something, but it it doesn't feel as natural. Right. Well, I mean, I, it's it's unnatural. Like that's an, the thing a, a about star. Jack Lemmon is he elevates it to this dance um, where you you mm-hmm. know watching him make his frozen TV dinner is absolutely beautiful to watch because he has and it, and of course it's not just you know be, you know elegant for its own sake. It's saying something about this character. And yeah. and like just how rote his life is that he has gotten so used to it that that all of this is muscle memory to him. Um, like that's a that's the thing about uh, Billy Wilder is he uh, the same way that like when um, Kirk Douglas striking the match on the typewriter is this little gesture that says a lot about characters. Billy Wilder is really great at finding those little moments or like little one liners where if you write you know if you date a married man you shouldn't wear mascara is just a one-liner in someone else's hands, but because of the context of this movie, it ends up saying so much about the character, and this movie never loses its sort of crackling dialogue style. Just because it has realer emotional depths, it doesn't really have a realer style to it. It still has that sort of traditional Hollywood comedy style. It's just that all the jokes mean something and are saying something about the characters, and sort of they reveal a hidden world of emotion and feeling uh, that, especially in the case of Shirley MacLaine's character, that is just like just under the surface. And again, you know, this is her. She's coming off of Some Came Running, which is a very similar character. Um, Oh, sure. In the Children's Hour, uh, I think was before this as well. In the Children's Hour, she's similar. She's always the, you know, uh, woe-begotten woman who has fallen in love with the wrong person and you know, suffers for it. Uh, and, and so like, this is just the ultimate expression of that Shirley MacLaine film persona. Yeah. And I like it how characters will, um, adopt other characters way of talking. And yeah. it's very subtle. I mean, obviously you start to realize that, you know, Jack Lemmon is saying something like cookie wise or whatever, because of that, the other guy that, you know, he works with. And he sort of adopts it into his own language. Uh, I think like it's it's really interesting how characters will do that or repeat certain phrases, but they mean something differently later. Yeah, I think that's something really, the Coen really, brothers really definitely special. learned from Billy Wilder. Oh, for sure. Um, Billy, yeah, w- no, that's that's. I mean, that's just right. like good comic writing is callbacks and stuff. But like Billy Wilder has such a, he just knows exactly how long after the first reference to something to bring it back. Um, in some like it hot, mm-hmm. there is this sort of throwaway 
joke. It's kind of a non sequitur. It doesn't really mean much of anything, but it's like there's a reference to type O blood. And then by the third time you hear the type O blood reference, it's so fucking funny, even though it doesn't really mean anything. It's just because it has, it's just perfectly, it's the rhythm of it is perfect. Um, And it's just this little, it's just this little gift to people who are paying attention. Um, And it is, and that's the sort of thing that when you told me like Billy Wilder really loved the work of writing screenplays, that's the sort of thing that makes you understand how much he loves that work is because there is so much effort like that and callbacks and the way, um, yeah, Jack Lemmon parrots other things people tell him because, again, he is this person who is so afraid to stand up for himself that he sort of just takes the shape of what people around him want him to be. Um, like, that that says so much about him, but it's also just, like, very good comedy writing. And it ultimately becomes about self-respect, and that's what I love yeah. about it, too. It's like that moment where he decides to give Fred McMurray you know, the executive bathroom key is something like, I just imagine like a whole crowd applauding in that moment. And just, you feel that and you understand that. And certainly this is a, this is an ending that you can sort of not necessarily debate, but it it, it doesn't have like the happy, sunny, Oh, we're going to live happily ever after and right into the sunset kind of ending, even though he, you know, professes his love to her. It's not like she's acknowledging it at that moment. Cause she's probably been through so much shit that she's not ready to go there. Uh, like that's why she says shut up and deal it's almost like shut up and deal with my shit and you know maybe things will work out for us but it's like they both have self-respect by doing the right thing at the end and i think that's what makes it so powerful and special that it's not just about oh these two wind up happily ever after you know it's there's something more going on besides there's like it's really interesting because there's something insidious about self-respect because if you if you have too much self-regard then you're fred mcmurray like, one of the things that makes yeah, him yeah, giving yeah. Fred McMurray the bathroom key work so well is that Fred McMurray doesn't even seem to understand the significance. Like, the whole movie, he's so oblivious that he's just like, huh, I guess that guy just went crazy. Because, like, again, <laughs> anything in his world where people don't act the way that he wants them to act, it's just sort of like, he just does that thing where it's like, well, that's not how that's supposed to work. Let's try that again. And Jack Lemon, you know, says no, don't, doesn't give him a key. Like, well, you know, you gotta give me the key, though. <laughs> it's like... Uh, so the the fact that Fred McMurray isn't like mad or like y'all warning you, he's just sort of like, huh, huh, weird. I don't, I don't even understand. Uh, like that to me is that's the guy who has way too much self regard and self respect. And it's like Jack Lemmon gets a little bit of it when he thinks he's getting a promotion, and that's when he first asks out Shirley MacLaine. And like that's good. That's what you should do. You should have enough confidence in yourself to instead of just quietly lusting over the the fun, cute, you know, funny girl in the elevator, like. If you want to be with her, you should ask her to be with you, you know? And, like, that's that's him finding enough self-respect and using it in a helpful way. But then he gets too much of it and he sort of loses sight of everything. Um, and it is about sort of the... There is this seductive power to the corporate world, almost, that makes you lose who you are. Um, and it makes you buy into their set of morals, which only benefits them and not you. Um so, and the fact that this is a romantic comedy that it has twists and turns, it has mistaken identities, it has, you know, all of these little jokes and stuff that are traditional part of this genre, but it also weaves in all of that stuff about capital, and it also just has so much depth and and the characters that are so interesting and three-dimensional, um, it's just, it's really an astounding work, and I'm not, you know, uh, it's... 
it's it's really hard for me to admit that this is like the greatest screenplay of all time because I in my mind I want something that's challenging and this is a movie that is absolutely staying in its lane as far as it's not it's not changing what a romantic comedy can be it's just doing the best possible job at it um, but you know it, it is an astounding work and and uh, especially all of the actors involved uh, just do are just. They're just so perfectly cast that it works perfectly. I brought up all my points. I like I said, I think it's just as good as writing can get. And there's just so much memorable dialogue, memorable characters, and you actually feel, you know, so many different emotions at different times. And to me, that's just what makes a great movie in general. Speaking of great movies, Billy Wilder had a lot of them. Uh, what's a, what's another Billy Wilder movie that you would want to... I know we've, we've touched on a bunch of his movies, but what, what's another Billy Wilder movie you want to talk about? Uh, definitely Duff, Double Indemnity keeps going up and up for me as one of the all-time great films. And, you know, it's, it's another film about kind of going after the American dream in completely the wrong way. But he was almost using the film noir genre to comment on, upon, like, this this changing America post-depression where folks were trying to acquire as much as they could, but at the same time, it's just a, a, a kick-ass, you know, film noir where you have a very simple plot where a femme fatale just convinces this insurance agent to kill her husband and they'll split the insurance money and run off into the sunset. And guess what? Doesn't go that way. <laughs> Never does. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. And the, I mean, the German expressionist lighting obviously has been, you know, done a lot. But I, I just feel like, yeah, he did he did take time and effort to uh, be cinematic in telling this story and having a really great performance from Edward G. Robinson sort of playing against type. Um, yeah, he kind of pretty much steals the film at times uh from both from both of them i just think he's a great character because he's again he's like somewhere in the middle he's got this gray area of you know being in denial about his friend but also wanting to help him at the same time and you know not not being like hey you know this is cigar chewing villain right or anything like he's just it's funny that edward g robinson he got big from little caesar and like that's his his great contribution to pop culture is weird 30s gangster voice. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, and, and like in those like movies, it works. Like, his physicality is really funny because he is just so short and he does have a weird, like, kind of a toad face. And, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like you understand why he became immediately such a caricature. But he is a brilliant, like, he was a really smart, good actor. And everyone who ever worked with Edward G. Robinson said, like, yeah, he was the real deal. He really was a great actor. And in addition to being... Uh, you know, one of the founding members of SAG and one of the people who fought against uh, HUAC and, and uh, you know, the blacklisting and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, he's really good in Double Indemnity. Yeah, and it's just, yeah, again, uh, you know, I say this a lot, but attention to detail. It's really interesting 
to watch Fred McMurray sort of go through the minutia of what he has to do even before setting out to, you know, commit the murder. And just like all the little precautions he's taking, like, you know, sticking matchbooks under his door knocker or something. And, you know, and, and it's like little things like that, I think, really influenced, uh, you know, these types of films or, or someone like Mamet for, you know, for House of Games. Just like just the perfect attention to what a character is doing to pull off something insidious. And you find that just as fascinating you know, it's like it's like a learning experience on being a criminal. Yeah. That I think, I think Billy really Wilder under, Billy Wander understands that all of the flavor of a screenplay comes from the detail. Uh, mm-hmm. Like the nutrition of the story is, you know, in the broad plot strokes and everything. But the thing that makes something fun to watch and exciting is just uh, is are just little details like that. And David Mamet is very process oriented. He's very interested in the way people do specifically do the things that they do. Um, and so he also has that sort of attention to detail. Yeah. And talk about another perfect ending that was trimmed from a longer cut where, you know, we would actually see Fred McMurray's character go to court and then the gas chamber, but Wilder just kind of knew it was much better just to cut at him, not making it to the elevator and slowly dying in agony while Edward G. Robinson calls the cops, you know, like that, that ending, it, it just, it just works so perfectly after everything that has escalated. And, you know, again, another character who, who ends up morally bankrupt and becomes highly aware of it, tries to kind of redeem himself, but knows that he can't (laughs) essentially in the end. And it's just, it's just brutal and, 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 and wicked and really, really tight. So I don't know. I, when I watch double indemnity, I just kind of go, that's, that's a perfect example of film, film noir done right in every way. Yeah, one of the greats. Um, Style League 17 is very influential in its own way. It's Sure. Uh, at the very least, it's, uh, you know, it is the format for Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> like, Hogan's Heroes <laughs> is absolutely someone went into a boardroom and said, what if Style League 17 was a TV show? Um, but more yeah, importantly, the point. prison movie, uh, the sort of laid-back pace the idea of prison as this sort of masculine summer camp uh, that is uh, that alternates between uh, sort of comedy and and terror. Um, I mean, that's you know, Shawshank Redemption is a massively popular movie, and Shawshank Redemption owes everything to Stalag Seventeen, in my opinion. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, no, I that's that's very true, and it's and it's one that I finally caught up with and kind of went, wow, this is uh, this is something really remarkable. You know, and not one that I, I mean, I think people talk about it, but certainly not in the same league as some of the ones we've mentioned. And yet I think it's every bit as essential and and, and an example of making a play again, you know, maybe not necessarily cinematic, but just really um, engaging based on, you know, character interaction right in front of your eyes and you get really caught up in it and you really want to see what's going to happen and how they're going to get away with, uh, you know, what they're doing. Also casting a uh, German director <laughs> as a uh, prison guard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think, I think Otto Preminger uh, was, uh, he did act in some other things. I can't remember if it's him or Eric von Stroheim who is the prison guard in Grand Illusion. I think it might be Eric von Stroheim. I think so. Um, but Eric von Stroheim plays uh, sort of the big bad Nazi in uh, Five Graves to Cairo, and obviously he's the chauffeur. 
uh, in Sunset Boulevard uh, along and Buster Keaton and Cecil, uh, Cecil B. DeMille both play themselves, uh, two more directors. It's not really a trend through his whole career, sadly. I was like kind of hoping like, oh, it's fun. He's sneaking in directors, but it was just those. So I imagine that it's just a bunch of German expatriates who are all friends and he put his friends in the movies. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting, but, uh, yeah, watching um, something like Avanti because, I mean, the late 60s and, and 70s weren't as kind to Wilder because maybe at the time irony and satire were just sort of out of step with that generation because they were all about peace and love and all that stuff. I don't know. Like, I, I like he just, he, I wouldn't say he seemed out of touch more as his career went on, but it did, it just didn't click. Like the, the elements weren't coming together in a satisfying way, but at the same time you watch something like Avanti and you go, Oh no, there's, there's a lot to love about this movie, even if it's not entirely successful, you know? Yeah. I think the thing about Billy Wilder's later career is that Billy Wilder, his whole thing is that he's sort of a bad boy. Like, he sort of pushes boundaries and, and, and breaks taboos, and he likes to sort of push the envelope of good taste, and uh, sort of, like, part of his comedy comes from knocking people out of their comfort zone. And then once you get into a world where, like, wry suggestions to sex are no longer shocking because you can just have a sex scene on film, like, mm-hmm. you can just have nude scenes, you can, like... Uh, he doesn't quite know what to do with himself. Also, most of his later career, almost all of his later career, is him adapting plays as opposed to originating material. That's true. Which to me says that his, you know, as 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 like as all almighty as his uh, screenwriting p- prowess might be, like he was probably, you know, after thirty years of making films, he was probably running a little low on new ideas and was just sort of settling for, you know, retooling these uh, plays. You know, he never shot them. He always reworked the script. He never just shot a play as it was on stage. So he, you still get those Billy Wilder touches in all of them, but uh, he he definitely uh, didn't have that same fire that he did in the beginning of his career, which no one does. So that's not, no knock against him. No, and that's uh, but true. Avanti Avanti is a good uh, rare example of just the material that he is starting with, unlike something like Irma Laduce, which is sort of just bloated and and it's it's like a body kind of like risque comedy, but in a world where that's no longer body or risque, um, in, you know, in the midst of the sexual revolution, like his, his little cheeky references to, uh, you know, the, uh, sex workers of Paris is just, all right, that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> um, but Billy, uh, but, uh, Jack Levin's very funny in it and there's still a bunch of funny bits, uh, even though Shirley MacLaine's kind of miscast. Um, uh, but yeah, but Avanti is a film that, does have more of a tragic humanness to it. Again, yeah, a great yeah. opening. Uh, oh, for sure. Very good example of an opening where you like, all right, I need to see what's happening next. And he does sort of have a lot more of that invention um, in terms of, uh, like, there's just fun little plot twists all throughout Avanti and mistaken identity. Like, all that, all that old school Hollywood screwball kind of stuff. Like, there's enough of it that still works um, in that context. Uh, yeah. Again, even though, like, the woman in that movie is kind of pathetic and like, it's kind of, you watch it and you go, ugh, this could, this character could have and been why better. why are they you, calling her fat? <laughs> it's very strange. Her fat? It you kind know? of works for me. It kind of works that she's clearly not fat um, mm-hmm. and she has just internalized it and everyone is, because uh, like, my partner wrote, wrote uh, Consistent Panda Bear Shape, which was a uh, film blog about fat characters and one of the defining principles of what a fat character is, is Fat, there is no objective marker for fat. Fat is how a character is treated. 
Um, ah. And I think Avanti, like, because, you know, certain characters in certain contexts, no one mentions their weight. And then in other contexts, they're a fat character because that's part of the way the, the you know, the film is written. Um, and so Avanti is an interesting examination of that, of a, of a woman who not only is she not fat, she is also like body wise. She is kind of the typical uh, buxom bombshell that is plays the sexy characters uh, sure. in Billy Wilder movies. Like she does, she's not as skinny as Marilyn Monroe, but like she has a similar hourglass shape and all that. And it's so to me, I do think Billy Wilder is sort of pointing at the callousness of everything. I mean, her weight loss is also like, you know, she gains weight when she's dieting and then she loses weight when she's in Italy. And that's sort of a representation of Italy as being this place of life and joy and, you know, dulce la vida and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's other thematic things that her weight ties into. I don't think it's just that they're, they didn't want to cast a fat actor. Though, again, I think that movie still would have worked if she actually was fat. Yeah, I agree. Um, but and I think it's I think that entire sequence where they're going to sign the paperwork at the... Uh, I guess it's a morgue or something. Yeah. That whole, that whole, the, uh, oh, that guy with the stamps. Perfect. Mm-hmm. All that is just golden. So there's like yeah. moments in Avanti that are really strong, even if it's not, I think, an entirely successful movie. It's still worth seeing. And if you want to pick a, a film from his the latter part of his career to check out, I think this is probably it. Certainly not Buddy Buddy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, have to, I have to agree with Tarantino in that this movie probably didn't need to get made and you know as much as i love watching walter Matthau and jack lemon on screen together you have much better examples of that to go yeah. to including the fortune cookie which again not entirely successful but when you have walter Matthau and jack lemon on screen together it, it's just, that's just as good as a you know duo can be on screen I feel like a lot of those later Billy Wilder movies also just get bloated. Like they just get longer and longer and the scenes just keep going. And I think, again, it's it's a combination of when you're not quite as in touch with the material and mm-hmm. the sensibilities of the age just because you've aged out of being that in touch. And also when you have so much – like you are – you're fucking Billy Wilder. No one has more Academy Awards than you do. So like the fact – like no one's going to tell him no – you know, he's working with United Artists. He's producing his own films. He can kind of just do whatever he wants. The result is movies like Fortune Cookie and Irma LaDuce uh, kind of just feel too long. Um, yeah. Even One, Two, Three, which I think is a very funny movie. It's just like a little bloated. And there's, it's just a little too much of it. Just just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a, like it's on, you know, Marx Brothers level of mania. Right, but Marx Brothers movies were like 76 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly, and that one's like a hundred minutes, and yeah, it, d- it does kind of wear out its welcome. But good lord, James Cagney, what a what an exhausting performance! And I think even yeah. he had to take time off of acting after that because it just depleted him. <laughs> but I mean, a, I it's a sight I've, to behold. I've, I have long cited Footlight Parade as one of my all time favorite films, which is a uh, Busby Berkeley film that James Cagney is in, and it, James Cagney in Footlight Parade is the exact same thing. He just runs into every scene. Um, and he is just motor mouth mile a minute and then like moving around and doing all these physical comedy along with it. And it's, and it is absolutely exhausting and astonishing to watch. And he's so good in that. Uh, I want to talk quickly about five graves to Cairo, which yeah, please is, do. Cause I, 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 I don't think that's available anywhere. It's a, there is a, there is a DVD copy. Oh, okay. Um, so I have the DVD, but I saw it on TCM a long time ago. And that was a sort of thing that made me go like. 
that was a key moment where it's like, if you get a great director, maybe don't just watch the acclaimed films. Maybe check out some of the other stuff because that can be just as interesting, but oh, definitely not appreciated. And that was a key moment early on in my sort of cinephilia of seeing Five Graves of Cairo and being like, I've never heard anyone speak this title. And it's great. It's like, it feels like a Tarantino movie almost in that the late later period Tarantino movie where he's just sort of about building tension and and. Like it's it's almost a hateful eight sort of a situation where it's all contained in this one hotel, Ooh. and the whole movie you're just like, oh, you're gonna get caught. Oh shit, how's he gonna get? Oh, oh. and and um, it's just this. Yeah, it's this British uh, tank uh, pri- uh, sergeant um, who barely escapes the desert with his life into a hotel in uh, Egypt. He, literally five minutes before the Nazis storm in and take over the tank as their like sort of center of operations for their African campaign. So he is stuck in this place where he can't be seen. And then later he disguises himself as the waiter who's dead in the basement. So like literally the corpse of the guy that he's pretending to be is in the basement of this building. That's full of <laughs> Nazis. Um, oh, wow. And he is, and at some point he's trying to escape. And then another point he realizes that he has to pull off whether or not he lives, he has to pull off a job to like deflect and and stop their African campaign, um, and that involves the five graves to Cairo, which is a keyword, like a code word that he has to figure out what that means. Um, and Eric von Stroheim plays like the Nazi leader, and it is just really exciting. And it's 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 minor, it's it's low budget, and the act none of the performances are quite on the level of later Billy Wilder movies when he was working with the greatest actors in Hollywood. But like, it's really fun and exciting. And if you like those kind of resistance war movies, it's uh, it's almost a good uh, sort of companion piece to Casablanca. Um, whereas Casablanca, Rick is sort of trying to work against the Nazis out in the open, and he's conflicted about how to do it correctly. In this one, you know, he's he's trying to work in secret and in a similar sort of setting. And there's the 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 maid who works at the hotel who she's trying to work at cross purposes with him. So they have a sort of tortured romance uh, where. Uh, they're trying to figure that out, and it's it's really fun and exciting. Yeah, that one I'll definitely catch up with, and I think the Lost Weekend deserves mention for a great Ray Milan performance. And you know, it won four Oscars, and it was the first film to treat alcoholism very seriously. Uh, you know, it's it, you know where it's going, and and certainly, but at the same time, like you, you think of watching a movie like that when it first came out, I think people were also blindsided by it. But this time, you know it won a lot of acclaim and rightfully so it's it's really effective and certainly sure. better than something like leaving las vegas in my opinion <laughs> i haven't seen i haven't seen Lost weekend in a very long time but i will say i'm glad billy wilder didn't necessarily go that route and make respectable movies <laughs> yes yeah. no i mean I, I understand that's 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 true you know and you can certainly watch something like witness for the prosecution as being kind of slight but you know, it's it's a courtroom drama adapted from the work of Agatha Christie, so you kind of know what you're going in for, and it's satisfying in that way. Like, you get the big twist, and it does get kind of over the top, especially at the end, but if you just want something light, you know, that's, your, that's not necessarily going to make you think deeply about relationships and politics and things like that, I'd say Witness for the Prosecution was fun on, like, a Sunday afternoon, you know? Sure. So and he's got movies like that in his filmography, and good lord, what a filmography! And we still haven't even seen like I haven't seen Spirit of St. Louis. Oh yeah, there's uh, a lot more. There's still there's still many titles that I didn't catch up with. Love in and, the afternoon. I've never seen. Yeah, Sabrina. I feel like I've 
maybe have seen, but I don't remember it too well. I, I hate Audrey Hepburn, so like that's to me, Sabrina just doesn't work because it it's centered around like isn't Audrey Hepburn kooky and wonderful and and gorgeous and funny and I'm like no to all of those. Aww, <laughs> so poor Audrey. I'm not a Sabrina person, but uh, I'm there. It certainly it has another uh, wacky suicide attempt. So it it keeps the uh, the running theme uh, through Billy Wilder movies of people attempting suicide. Yeah, that should be the title of my memoir: Wacky Suicide Attempts. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway. What are your top three Billy Wilder films, Patrick? Uh, I think for me, I got to go with The Apartment. Um, I got to go with uh, Sunset Boulevard. And I have to go with Double Indemnity. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! Very close. I think I re- responded to one title even strongly, more strongly than you. But number three for me would also be Double Indemnity. Number two, ooh, Ace in the Hole. And number one, The Apartment. Number one with a bullet, man. You know, Some Like It Hot I might like more than. So I, I, I forgot I know, like it's it tough. Hot. I like, obviously, for me, you know, in the, if we want to just do a top five, the other two would be Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot. So, yeah, you know, it's... it's I think I would probably go with Stalic 17 and uh, Some Like It Hot if, if, I were, if we're adding it to top five. But, like, yeah, Billy Wilder... Just absolutely a, a astonishing uh, film work. Uh, his career is unimpeccable. His, you know, his influence is, is uncountable. Um, just really great filmmaker. Yes, it's about time we got to him, and I'm glad we did. Um, so yeah, I, I I'd say around the third week of June is when you can expect the uh, next Directors Club, which will include guest critic David J. Foley, and his pick was the great Peter Weir, which. Yes, we already did an episode on, but that was nearly a decade ago. Yeah, that was crazy. in the days where we didn't know what we were doing. True. Uh, so, But I'm also eager to talk about two different films this time with Witness and The Mosquito Coast. So we got like a double dose of Harrison Ford there. Uh, and, you know, I'm, we'll probably still touch upon how great, you know, Fearless is, but it just won't be the main review this time. Uh, so that's exciting. I'm really looking forward to that uh, and watching maybe a couple more of his films that I haven't seen yet. Uh, but yeah, where can people find you, Patrick? You know, you, you, you're working hard these days on a lot of right here. <laughs> I've been right sitting in right your, here, right in your apartment. Yeah, um, uh, letterbox.com/slash/patrickrapol. I guess I don't know how their uh, website formats uh, hyperlinks, but. Whatever. Uh, people don't need to find me. <laughs> that's, that's a, I'm okay. Their lives are complete without me in it. I don't need yeah. a big web presence. Uh, just just follow him on Letterboxd and stay tuned to more episodes of Tracks of the Damned, especially since uh, the last one we did was a lot of fun, um, Friday the 13th Part 6. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, and uh, yeah. I look forward to you hearing you continue the series. I might just go ahead and watch along with the, with the, with the final, what, three? Four? Fridays that you have left? I got to do part seven with Bill Ackerman. Um, Yay! Then I'm going to do uh, part eight. Uh, then I'm going to do Goes to Hell, Jason X, Freddy versus Jason, and the remake. So that's oh, six wow. more. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm excited to. Also, go ahead if and I have to go along. back to work during this time, uh, I may put those on hold because I don't know how much time I have for uh, this sort of thing. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see what happens in June, because mm, things are getting interesting around here in Chicago. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, stay tuned, everybody. And uh, 
please uh, visit directorsclubpodcast.com and send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow me at Letterboxd over at Now Playing Jim. And uh, sometimes I'm on Twitter doing weird things. Uh, recently, uh, one of my parody songs was uh, included on a very popular uh, Twitter account called uh, Disney Prime Video, which uh, every once in a while you can see uh, a goofy video or a song that I've made get posted there, and uh, it gets pretty wacky. Uh, but yeah, just those are the main places you can go, and please uh, just stay subscribed, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you again in, in October, Patrick. Thanks so much for for being on and. Uh, Looking forward to staying in touch, and uh, wow, what a great episode. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Already calling it. It's a great episode.